0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. Happy 5th of July. I hope the world is singing. Hope you got to see some fireworks last night. I hope that you got to wake up close to the person that loves you. Got a great show for you today. We got uh, an incredible guest, Jeff Wolner. He's an award-winning writer, a satirist, spiritual commentator, and avid barbecue enthusiast. He's the founder of The Not Working Experience, a community-built, to bring people together on a soul-to-soul level, where no one is judged by their story of what they do for a living. You've seen him on, he's been featured on Fox 5, New York Newsday, and other outlets as a leader in this and that and the other. He's also the author of a series of books, uh, Get Bitter to Get Better, The Adventures of Super J, The Gen X Code, Christmas in New York, Montreal, A Journey Through La Belleville and Path to Perfectia, as well as a comedian, a performer, and so much more. Jeff, thanks for being here today, man. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, brother. Aloha.
0: Yeah, man. There's something to be said about living in Hawaii. It's so beautiful here. It'll fundamentally change you, and uh, it's changed my outlook on life, and it's brought me somehow moving moving here to Hawaii, helped me set up this show, which allows me to be talking to you today.
1: I'm I'm glad you moved out there, man, because I don't think this is happening if you move to North Dakota. It's just Ah. a hunch. I don't think that's happening, man. Just, Just call it a (laughs) <laughs> and, and nothing but love for your North Dakotans out there. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think this happens. <laughs> it's it's yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: It's, it's a beautiful place. You know, I was reading your newest book right here that I have a copy of. For people that are for watching, you can see the newest book right here, path to perfect you. Dude, I was laughing my ass off, man. It's got, it's got more punchlines than potholes on the New Jersey turnpike, man. How, how did this thing come to be?
1: <laughs> it's crazy, man. So last November, I had a moment of just utter surrender. Like I, I literally felt like, uh, like the French forces in world war II. you know, I'm seeing the Panthers <laughs> come at me. I'm like, I just, I just take it, just take me. I'm good. Like we're, there's no fight. There's no resistance happening here. Like I'm all yours. Mm-hmm. And it came after that, this year long dark night of the soul that I had, you know, it's very, as you know, very common after you have this awakening to immediately be kind of dragged right back into this like 3d dense thing and suffocated in it like you're working in sales and a little bullpen and like you can't move and you can't breathe and you just feel stuck in it and it's like it's this world's way of reminding you yeah that's great that's great you had this experience you're all communed. guess what you're still human we're gonna remind <laughs> you of it now in a real bad way so i had all that and then after a year of fighting and struggling and trying to like just dig out of that i said universe i'm all yours like i'm done fighting i'm done struggling Take me where you're going to take me and that is when this book was born and i'm on the road and i have this another moment of this like communion moment but this time it wasn't a we're going to drag you back in this is a we're going to let you out Mm. and here's a story we want you to tell based on what we're giving you and i don't know who they are i don't claim to have that answer (laughs) but it just started pouring out onto the pages and it took me a few months and then honestly man once it was done I looked at it, and I, I looked at it up and down, inside and out, and I said, "Who the hell wrote this book?" Because I had no idea how this thing came together.
0: Man, it's you know, it's not uncommon to hear a story like that, where you know, whether it's some of the great writers, like Stephen King or yourself, that have found a way to create an artistic outlet where you just capture the spirit, or maybe the spirit captures you, and you're 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 transformed, or you know, you've conjured some sort of spirit that that just makes you through. Is was it like that for your other books, or was it primarily this one, or is it something that happens in your life all the time? Or what's yeah, this on?
1: one. Yeah, it's a good question. This one really was the one I would say was really channeled, like truly, okay. truly channeled. The other ones came from different levels of consciousness, and mm. and and I can see kind of the evolution of my own thinking, my own being through each one of these different books. Like my first one was called "Get Bitter to Get Better." And ah, uh, <laughs> you can tell that clearly came from a place of like deep, deep magnanimity and, and love mm. for all creatures out there. And that one was was really more of a self-help book. And the the, the core message was still the same actually from that and all of them, which was the idea of transmutation of energy. If you're mm-hmm. struggling with something, here's how you get through it and to the other side of it and conquer it. In this, that particular one was about people's fear of, performing during the big moments of life. So if you're giving, you know, a speech at your daughter's wedding, or you're giving a big sales presentation, or you're going on a, on a big date, you've been anticipating or a job interview. And the reason we don't win these moments is because we don't feel we're worthy of winning these moments. Mm. And where that comes from, almost all the time, if you really dig into it, were people who had these quote villains in their lives, who planted this in their head, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. You're not sexy enough. You're not mm. this. You're not that. You're going to blow it. And that just never leaves. And then the moment arrives and that voice is in your head They're like, well, shit, maybe they were right. And then that's it. You peter out. And so this was a seven step process, this book on how to take that negativity, how to take those villains in your life and actually use that energy as opposed to running away from it, but use it as your freaking jet fuel to propel you into those big moments and to grab that mic and say, yeah, I can't do it. How do you like me now? And then just... <laughs> lay the room.
0: So. Yeah, it's a great way to take that energy and change it. And I love the idea that it gives you the it seems to me in a way it's it's controlling the meaning of the event. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Like in life you can't really control what happens to you. But you and you alone get to control the meaning of that event. Like you, you know, there's people that go through horrible accidents and they say, Oh, because this happened, I'll never love again. And then there's people that have that same thing happen and are like, because this happened, I'm gonna love more than I've ever loved before. Kind of sounds like you're just changing the flow of that energy.
1: That's it. Yeah. It's um one of the the great lessons I took from Taekwondo when I took it in college was nice. my I'll never forget this. My Sensei said, There are three ways to respond to an attack, and only one of them is gonna be effective in a fight. He said, the first way to respond to an attack is just to run away. Like they're just coming at you and just turn and run. he said, that will will protect you in that moment. But ultimately you've not neutralized the threat because it's still going to come after you. The second is to just stand there and just take the punch. Well, great. That's (laughs) not going to be a great freaking idea either. It's going to land you in the ER. Okay, let's not do that. But the third is to change the relation of the attack. Mm. So now this energy is coming towards you. This attacking energy is coming towards you. And instead of running and instead of standing and taking the hit, you simply you deflect the attack, and now you have a changed relation to the attacker because now you have the drop on the attacker, and you can counterattack. So it's it's using that, and judo uses it even better. Actually, I think you know uh, judo particularly has mastered the art of changing the relation of energy. It's that idea of you use the opponent's momentum against them. So they're coming at you. You shift your body weight. You shift your angle, and then you, you have leverage on them, and you can immediately get them to the ground and a lot of MMA fighters are absolute maestros at this. Mm. So when it comes to kind of stepping into a big moment in life, if you have these doubts and this negativity that's been seething inside of you for all these years that were planted by other people who have their own insecurities, who are just spewing them out on you, then take that, it's energy. Mm -hmm. So don't run, don't hide, don't let it kill you, take it and use it, use that energy, change the relation and say, all right, now I have all this energy that I didn't have before. It was given to me by somebody else. I'm going to take it and use it as fuel. I'm going to put it in my gas tank, and I'm going to freaking soar. So, so that – yeah, no, know. that's fascinating. And I'm curious. Do you use that
0: same methodology when you use wordplay and comedy? You know, like sometimes mm-hmm. you can use like the double entendre or mm-hmm. – you know. I, I grew up in a, I grew up in like a mostly Mexican neighborhood and we had a joke about judo It's like, Mex, you know, I know Mexican judo. Judo not know if I got a gun or Judo not know if I got a knife, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like you can use different words to flip mm. people's minds and I can make you paint or I can paint pictures in your mind if I use words as a paintbrush to just to change a color here change the background change the foreground and in a lot of your books man you have tons of like one liners and and just funny little witticisms but that seems to me a changing of energy by mm. by the interplay of words man is that a similar mm. pattern you've used in judo and life that you do with mm-hmm. wordplay and comedy
1: 100% it's pattern interruption and that's how you get people ah. to really pay attention because like anything else you know, think about building up tolerance to something, right? And yeah. the reason, you know, particularly like, you know, with alcohol, they say you build up a tolerance and microdosing, they say don't microdose every day for six months, it will completely mm-hmm. lose its impact. You have to have that pattern interruption to kind of reset and, and again, change the relations. So, you know, even when I'm writing something very, very heavy and there's parts of the book that, that are heavy for long stretches, there's, there are pattern interrupts in there. Mm-hmm. So people's like energy shifts and their perspective shifts and there, they kind of stay with me on this. And I do that with everything that I do, with all the comedy that I do, you know, it's a setup in the punchline. It's the same idea. It's that you take them this way and then you pull the rug to go that way. (laughs) Right. And any serious speech I've given. And, you know, when I write for clients, I do a lot of ghostwriting. When they're giving very serious keynotes about like big topics, Mm -hmm. I say at least every couple of paragraphs, you need like a great one-liner to just keep their attention and have that pattern interrupt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like having a i don't mean this as a pejorative but i mean it's almost pornographic in a way in that Mm. you want to flash something in front of them to keep their attention whoa like shock them a little bit you know it's a and this brings me to an interesting question because you have mastered different modalities of communication what i mean by that is you're able to stand up and perform you're clearly able to write books that keep people entertained what do you think is the the power of sense modalities. Let me unpack that a little bit because mm-hmm. I know I'm using these funny kind of bigger words or whatever. But, you know, if I read a book, I am reading your story and I'm creating the movie in my mind of you and a girl that you meet at a funeral and you're wearing a pink shirt. <laughs> or, you know, if I'm standing watching you do a skit up there, now I'm seeing you do something. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's still sort of, I have to paint the picture in my head versus like a movie where I would go and sit down and just have the, have it put in my head. What do you think right. are, are the, the, the pluses and minuses about thinking for yourself while reading a book versus watching a movie and having that image put in your head?
1: I think the cool thing about reading a book is you can filter it through your own perspective. And you can start bringing in people, you know, so I've talked to folks who've who read the book and it's so interesting how each one of them has a different idea of what these characters look like, even though the physical description is given for all the characters, right. at least on, on some level or another, but each one of them looks at it a little bit differently. Like, Oh, I think, I think she, if she were cast, if this becomes a movie, which it will, by the way, I'm manifesting it, but out there. Nice. nice. This they say, okay, so like Diana, for instance, Diana will definitely be cast by this person. And then someone else will say, oh, I think she'll be cast by... And they look totally different. They look like completely different people. Like they're not even like the same like ethnicity. It's wild. Like they look, they're look, they radically different. And the characters described the exact same way in the book, read by two different people. Where in the movie, it takes that away from you and it just it gives it to you. So right. I think when you read a book, in some ways you become a co-creator with the author. Right. And when you're watching a movie, you're, you're really just kind of becoming a consumer of the entertainment. And that's fine. I think there's merit to both, but I think they're very different experiences. Which one do you think is a better experience? Honestly, I don't know if there's one better or the other, and I'm kind of a cop out, but I, 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 I love them both. And I think they both serve different, different purposes and functionalities. So I think people consume information in different ways. Mm. Like Personally, it's interesting because I don't love to read fiction. I love to write fiction. I don't love to read fiction. I love to consume fiction on TV. I love to consume it in movies if it's really good and it suspends Mm -hmm. disbelief. Part of the reason is the way my brain works is that I don't suspend disbelief that easily. So if I read a book, there's too many pauses that I can take on my own time to dissect it and unpack it and and nitpick it to pieces. Mm. But if it's just being fed to me, it will just kind of suck me in and take me in. I'm like, all right, here we go. It's like when you're strapped in the roller coaster, like, all right, yeah. that's it. Let's let's rock, you know, and like the roller coaster is going to take you where it takes you. And it's not up to you anymore. And, and I kind of like that in some ways. It t- gets me out of my own head. Yeah, there's it's it's almost like
0: a little mind vacation. You get to sit back and, and relax for a little bit and just kind mm-hmm. of put it on autopilot. I love what yeah. you said about. Yeah, I love what you said about auto like or co-creation, because I really think that that is. More of a fulfilling and rewarding thing for people to do. And if I think we've gone too far into the world of consumption, where you know, Mm. if you want to watch a movie now, it's probably going to be a superhero movie (laughs) for some reason, right? Yeah. Do you think that? Yeah. Do you think that? Do you think that that speaks volumes of where we are as a society when the major platforms and the major things we see is a fantasy about someone coming to save us?
1: I think it's huge. I mean it goes it goes back a long time. I think I think all pop culture is a reflection of where who and where we are in the zeitgeist and I think mm. it just kind of it just it just puts that onto the screen just mm. to reflect back to us who and what we are at that time. I don't think that we have a whole a whole lot of art that's disconnected from where we are, which is why mm. when that happens it's so extraordinary and it's so revolutionary. It's why I think The Wizard of Oz is is one of my favorite movies of all time aside from the fact that i played the tin man in 6th grade i'm going to give a shout out to my 11-year-old self like well done little man uh it, it the wizard of oz to me and and there's so many different interpretations of it but to me it was the greatest the single greatest allegory of our journey as humans of and and it was it was put in such a way where it had a deep resonance with people and movies like that were not made in those days this was like you know the charlie chaplin era with silent films and you know just like dancing around and you know with hats spinning around this and that and you know and then before that, you know, you had Birth of a Nation, which was extremely controversial. Mm. And that also was a mirror of what the society was at the time. Wizard of Oz was not a mirror, it was an insight. It was a glimpse into something much deeper that we knew, but we weren't experiencing consciously, which was this idea of we're constantly searching for the wizard. We're searching for this magical, mythical thing that's gonna save us. And it's always out there, we're searching out there for Something to save us. Meanwhile, we had the Ruby Red slippers all along. We could have gone home anytime we wanted, but we went on this journey. And along the journey that we take here, we're gonna meet lots of friends, we're gonna meet people who love us. You know, she'll meet the cowardly lion and the scarecrow and the tin man, and we're gonna meet adversaries who are trying to thwart us every step of the way, the wicked witch and the flying monkeys. And we're gonna have all these things happen as part of the journey. You know, it's like the uh you know, it's like the odyssey. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you realize what you were looking for was what you already had and, and always had, and there was not entertainment created in those days that had that message, which was extraordinary at the time.
0: Yeah. When I when I look back on that movie, I see the people trying to send us a message like, "Look, if you follow the path of money, it leads to some." dummies that don't really create anything. They just give you the illusion of creation. And you know what? You yeah. are a tiger. You do have a heart. Don't mm-hmm. let these dummies tell you that you don't have these things because you have the power all along if you're willing to take it back. And you know, I didn't really understand that until I got a little bit older and I started and ma- maybe that speaks volumes of how I see the world, but you know, I just it it, it really begins to beg the question of, you know, how much Heart, do you have? How much courage do you have? Are you willing to walk the path and pull back the curtain on these illusions that you mm-hmm. were fed? You know, it's it's awesome to kind of look back and now I now I begin to say, yeah, maybe movies are, are pretty good on that level. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about how the world that we project onto the screen, whether it's the screen in our mind or the big screen in front of us, how how it does imitate the world we live. And there's that saying that says art imitates life and I don't know. What do you see on the horizon, man? If we just stay with this idea that art, that art kind of, you know, imitates life, like what do you see on the, on the big screen right now?
1: It, well, the big screen right now is, you know, they're, well, assuming this writer's strike ever ends and we actually get anything new created. <laughs> so that's a big if, who knows? Right. Right. Um, I think we're going to see, we're going to see something which is going to I think reflect where we're going consciously, which, which I, which I see as this, this polarization, this like, we're seeing a polarization in everything now, but I think we're going to see an increasing polarization of consciousness itself. So, and you're seeing it unfold with different people in your life. So think about the people who are what I would say are on the path of like doing the work, right? The people who are finally taking stock of their lives, who are finally creating a circle around them of people who support them, who love them, who encourage them, who see their dreams and believe in their dreams and underwrite their dreams Versus others who are stuck in a cycle of of this, this hard negativity of everything sucks, the world, I hate my life. I hate everybody. I know this and that. And, and, you're, they're like, they're, and they dig down and they create a world around them, which reflects that back to them. And they associate with other people who reflect that back to them and they get deeper yeah. and deeper and deeper into that hole. I think what we're seeing is, and that's always existed on both sides, but I think we're seeing a polarity of it increasing now where those who are trying to bring more light into their life are doing so exponentially. And those who are in their darkness are also doing so exponentially. Mm. So I think in terms of the art we're going to see, I think it's going to be reflected on both levels. I think we're going to see the highest of highs in terms of luminescent art, in terms of things that are being drawn, things that are being created, things that are being spoken, interacted with that are going to reflect our greatest angels. And we're going to see other art that's going to reflect our deepest, darkest demons. And I think mm. we're gonna see more of that. I think the the days of like just the really basic stuff is probably gonna be coming to an end in the next generation or so. I think we're gonna just see this just increasing mirror of polarization in art coming down. But what the hell do I know? I could be totally off. <laughs> no, man. I, I I I can see that, you know,
0: and I, I think there's something to be said about the faith. There's something to be said about it almost sounds to me like you're speaking about a spiritual nature that's happening. And I, You know, I I love the idea of of spiritual nature. And I think that there is something to be said about faith and spirituality and becoming the best version of yourself. And if you have that relationship with spirituality, which in the psychedelic world, we see this giant return to a spiritual nature, not necessarily Mm -hmm. Jesus or Buddha, but Mm -hmm. this all-encompassing force that is just like a wave pushing people up higher and higher to heightened states of awareness. And you can really begin to see people emerging out of this space, whether it's through mental health, whether it's through, you know, I've I've noticed some people that are finding ways to use psychedelics to better women's health specifically or men's mm-hmm. health specifically. And it's just yeah. it's fascinating to think about. What what's your take on the idea of spirituality?
1: Man, how much time do you got?
0: I got all day, <laughs> brother, I got all day, man.
1: So uh, wow, that's a load of questions. So I, I think in a nutshell and we well, of course we'll unpack and dive in, but I, I think if you were looking at this as a thirty thousand foot view, okay, I think spirituality, in one word, is just understanding. Okay, it is just a, a coming home to ourselves. Mm. And I don't, I'm not a big believer in what I've called spiritual avatarism. Mm. So, in terms of it being represented, and I and I say this with a caveat and an asterisk, and I have a lot of very very dear friends and people I admire a lot who. Do what I would call the spiritual avatarism. So you know, uh, tarot card reading, this, that, and the other crystals. You know, meditation, yoga, all of that stuff, right? I think there's a place for all of that. I really do. But I think a lot of times, if that's the, your only entry point into it, it can obfuscate what the real truth is. And the real mm-hmm. truth is our our whole our whole nature, connected with everything, being one with everything. There is a you know the singular consciousness representing itself in all these multitude of ways as George, as Jeff, as this laminate brick behind me, as that map behind you, as this computer in front of me, as this freaking beautiful water bottle that like <laughs> you hydrated every day. It's manifesting as all these different things. And to me, spirituality is just the understanding of that. It's this mm. deep, it's a knowing of that. Not even a think, but it's just it's this knowing, it's this recognition of aha, that's right. And this is all experiential. Mm. But I think sometimes we get so lost in the avatarism of it that it becomes this like woo woo kind of thing that turns a lot of people off and it seems a lot of it seems weird and like ah come on there's no evidence for that crap and mm-hmm. you know and and I was on that that train for a long time like get out of my face with that mm-hmm. stuff I'm not having it you know and then uh and then I think you know then there's a religious component of it and I think for a lot of people religion is a pathway to that understanding I think for some people it turns them off but for some people it it allows them to have I would say a a track, and that's the train that takes them to that place, where otherwise they'd be lost in this kind of worldly illusion of what we consider to be real, but isn't, at least on its fundamental core. And for many people, religion can be that gateway into that. So um I, I don't like to to bash religion a lot of people do. I know right. it's kind of in vogue these days, but I think religion could be an extraordinary tool for a lot of people, but like anything else, could be also used for a lot of harm. So I think it's what you believe, how you believe it, how you apply it, how you integrate it. It's like anything else.
0: Yeah, that's well said. I I've, I've I was thinking along some similar lines of, you know, I think that – I guess I would say consciousness and spirituality are tied a little bit. It seems to me like a good definition of consciousness would be the – lived experience of the individual that's translated into the other. I, I'm, I'm kind of working with it there, but you know, yeah. it seems to me that I'm having the George experience. You're having the Jeff experience. There's a guy in here named Paul Fay who's got some absolutely funny jokes that's breaking some stuff down in here. Paul, thanks for coming in here, man. I'm going to put up some more comments later, but I just wanted to put them up here to, to talk about Scripture stuff. But when I think about the idea of Scripture and consciousness, I see this return happening. And when I think about consciousness, it, it it makes me think of lived experience. And even though I have my own lived experience and you and I are communicating and, and we're having some similar ideas about things, like I can never see things through your eyes. I can never exactly see the world the way you see it. I can get close. Yeah. I could sit in that exact same seat you're sitting in and look at stuff, but it would be the wrong, it would be a different time. And I think that that is the, the unknowable mystery that that takes us to spirituality. Like it's so beautiful, mm. but also such a tragedy that I will never, that no two people will ever see the same thing. You know, right. I mean? that's why we have like these, sometimes we fight about things or we we agree with things or we think we see the same things, but we never will. And it's mm. both the beauty and the tragedy Like that's spiritual in nature. Right.
1: I, I totally agree. It's a really good, really good comment here from, uh, the no absolute podcast. I, I love this here. <laughs> it's a really really good really good question i'd love to talk about this yeah. and i wrestle wrestled with this a lot too you know so if it's one experience self then what's the point right and if it's infinite mm-hmm. we'll experience the why the array of life why consciousness and i think that's too big of a question for any one fractal of consciousness to to answer authoritatively but i will just say from my own perspective and i'd love yours george too i just really see you know the idea of the universe and all of creation and consciousness is play. It's this idea of, you know, what's the point there is. The point is the point, mm. you know, as Alan Watts once said, the purpose of life is to live. It's just that simple. Right. It's, you know, think about a bunch of kids who get together, you know, and, and they're playing in the middle of the street and, you know, they, they get a, they get a football out there and they're just throwing it around and they're tackling each other. Like what you could honestly say, what's the point. It's fair to say, this game is not going to lead any of them into an NFL contract. It's mm. not going to, be televised and it's not going to get any of them a deal with a brand partnership. That's going to make them six figures. There's no quote point to any of it. And yet the joy that it brings them just to throw the football around and just beat the crap out of their buddies and tackle them to the ground and, and line up again and do it again is the point. The point is the point. The point is the experience that they wouldn't have played that football game. Had they not all made a conscious decision to experience what it would be like to just play the football game with their buddies that afternoon.
0: So, so is it fair to say, then, if you want to live a life worth living, you should embrace the experience and not worry so much about the monetary
1: gains? I mean, I think the monetary gains are, you know, they're part and parcel of this 3D reality, right? We, okay. we have constructed this reality where it's, at least for now, and that may change, the paradigm may change. <laughs> I'm certainly hoping it changes, getting boring, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, at least right now, you know, that, that has to be integrated into it. And I think... One thing that we the where we go wrong a lot and it leads to a lot of misery. And I don't say this to be preachy because, you know, pff, you could fill a f- in the universe of things that I don't know. This is just observational from what I've seen people struggle with. And they struggle on both ends. You know, like the th- let's call it the 3D spectrum and then the 5D spectrum. OK, where you have the 3D spectrum where you we are just this apparent matter and this flesh and blood and this need to procreate and reproduce and the drive to do that and all the problems that creates and this need to eat and to clothe yourself and to be all this stuff. Right. And you have to work in order to get the money to do that. And you're stuck in this dense reality where all of reality is, is surviving in the meat suit and that's it. And then it creates a whole set of value systems. You know, like the immigrant comes to the country is like, you've got to go to a good college to get a good job and make money. Cause that's all that matters in this world. Right. Okay. Survival. So it leads to a lot of misery for a lot of people. They're like, this is it. If this is it, this sucks. Honestly. Yeah. Then you have the other end of it, which is that 5D consciousness, this idea of like, well, everything is, I'm, I'm a spiritual being. I'm just having this human experience, but I'm connected to everything all the time with everybody. And the reality is that we're just all up, you know, we're connected. It's like this, this endless creation all the time, yep. but that doesn't pay the bills. Yep. And you get lost up there and that can create a lot of misery and itself because then you, the the reality of being in this meat suit, having this experience while your consciousness is out there can be unbelievably stifling, extremely stifling. And I think actually, and, and it's a different conversation, but I think it's actually a, one of the prime drivers behind suicide. Mm. And what I think, what I think the real magic is, is that 4d integration, is this, how do you meet these two in the middle? You know, there's a Buddha called the middle way. How do you meet these two in the middle? How do you have the understanding of consciousness, of that that oneness, of that connectedness, of that infinite field of potential, while also understanding you're in this dense reality as this character, playing this character in this role, in this time, space, and matter? And how do you fuse the two? That's where the magic is, and that is freaking tough. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well i think that takes us back to the idea of your latest book the path to perfectia you know is it all a dream is it are you did you write this story before you came in here that it seems kind of dancing around that premise a little bit
1: yeah it definitely it definitely talks about its idea of you know so you're coming here for the experience to play this character and to have this experience and while you play this character and have this experience you're gonna get dragged into that 3d mud you're gonna mm-hmm. you know and I, and I use this in quotations you're gonna lose people at least here it, it looks like you've lost somebody At least here it looks like you'll never interact with that consciousness again, because they died and that's it. And the the pain associated with that as you're a human and as your perspective is limited to just being a human is gonna be excruciating, excruciating. And you're gonna have other experiences that painful for a lot of other reasons, you're gonna get sick. You're gonna have all kinds of things that happen to you along the way. But the path of perfectia is how do you find your way back home as this character? How do you find your way back to that 5D consciousness? while you're still in this character. That's where the real magic is. How can you do that while you're still here? I think the implication is, you know, once the lights go out, okay, you're back home, it's great. Like you're you're reconnected with everything like, oh, okay, cool. But that's not where the juice is because you were already there to begin with. You know, how do you achieve that while you're still here? What an experience that could be if you could find your way back home while you're still here
0: yeah it seems that some of the characters in the book they really lean into some of the the heart-wrenching parts of their life you know and sometimes they're even they're even not coached but uh, you know sometimes they have people in their lives that are pushing them to lean into the anger like lean into the pain like isn't it yeah. beautiful you know yeah, I <laughs> is that is that a technique you use in your life? do you try to lean into the skid?
1: I've had to. Uh, <laughs> what do you with, mean? <laughs> to be can, we, with you.
0: can you give me well, an, an example? What you of be
1: about it? Not particularly, but you know, wh- the more I tried to, and last year was a great example of that. You okay. know, last year I had a lot of health problems. Last year, that were these like nebulous health problems mm. that you had, I eventually had to go to a functional practitioner to get to the bottom of. And the more these problems started compounding on top of each other, the more I tried to you know, turn against the skid, the more I try to control Mm -hmm. it, and go to like, yet another doctor and do yet another test and try yet another diet and yet another vitamin and yet another supplement and yet another another and I kept fighting against it, like, Mm -hmm. screw you, body, you're not playing ball over here. So like, I'm (laughs) going to manipulate you into being what I need you to be for me, based on the expectation that I set. And the more I did that, as you can imagine, the misery compounded and compounded and compounded. So eventually, I had this I was telling this moment of surrender where I was like, all right, I give up. I give up. Take me where you want to take me. And funny enough, my man, what happened when I surrendered? I started feeling better.
0: Imagine that. Imagine, Imagine that. that. Imagine that. Uh, you know, it's a funny word. I've had some interesting conversations with people. You know, um, sometimes the, in the world of psychedelics, there's this idea of people go to a retreat. You know, hey, let's go retreat. but. In the West, it's such a loaded term. Like when I think about retreat, I think about the French soldiers you brought up, you know, or I think about what kind of a what kind of a giant coward retreats, man. Shouldn't it be like? Should maybe retreat be changed out with confrontation, or is that just the ego talking?
1: I think it's the ego. I mean, I would would guess. I think I think it's the ego. I think, particularly in the Western world, we have this notion of we are the masters of our own destiny. We will. Mm. We can control everything. Right. And therefore we must control everything. And there are things that are not beyond our capacity to control. And if they are, we will one day control them too. Yeah, Like can't control the weather. Well, not yet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll control everything. We will eventually have a vaccine for every disease. We will eventually forcibly end racism. We will do that. <laughs> we will forcibly end homophobia. We will forcibly bring these things to an end. Because we can and we will. This idea we can control every not only every event but every heart. We can control yeah. every person's heart. We can control that. And when we and when this is this is what I love about it in that it is it's a very religious belief in that sense. Yeah, it's very old testament stuff. It's like you know, it's like the all powerful God will come in and control this. And we've taken that upon ourselves to be that all powerful Jehovah and be the ones mm-hmm. to control everything. And boy, do we get pissed off when we can't control something or somebody. Yeah man yeah, you know, when that happens
0: <laughs> we'll create an army to we just need more weapons that's all more we weapons. need we've got to scare yeah. people and they'll finally mm-hmm. if we can threaten them if we can't threaten yeah. them we'll get their families and then they'll do it because it's the right thing to do we're doing it for them right. it hurts us more than it hurts them
1: you know absolutely so they
0: would get on board
1: yeah and See it's not you unique need. not unique to the west <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm pointing fingers here yeah. but this is like this is a human phenomenon right it, it just seems that there's I think in in some eastern cultures and not all not all they're not a monolith by any stretch but okay there seems to be a bit more of an acceptance to kind of like the, the rhythm and the flow of life and kind of leaning into that versus no 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 no, no. this can't happen no we're, we're going to control this mm. because this we, this can't it can't happen we've set a parameter of what is allowed to happen and what isn't this is unallowed therefore we will fight against it for everything we've got
0: Okay, so this brings up, I've been reading like one of my favorite philosophers is Marshall McLuhan. And he was big in like the first wave of like the psychedelic sort of explosion that happened in the late 50s and 60s. And he wrote a book that I highly recommend to everybody. It's called The Gutenberg Galaxy. And in that book, he talks about how the printing press fundamentally shaped the world we live in today. And one example he gives is that he says that, you know, the idea of exact repeatability like just I was kind of, mm-hmm. i'm gonna say it again and i want people just to mow it over in your head for a minute exact repeatability exact repeatability exact repeatability imagine if that didn't exist imagine if i told you something and then you went and spoke to a group of people and told them what i said it's kind of like that game telephone like you could get close to it and the further away we got from the source the more it would change The more Mm -hmm. time something is repeated, internalized, and then put back out to the rest of the people, the more that idea can shift and change and become something else and have a little bit of freedom to itself. But when Mm -hmm. you bring about the idea of exact repeatability, you lose – even though it's translated exactly, you still lose a little bit along the way. You lose the emotion. You lose the context. You lose it even Mm -hmm. though it's exact repeatability. And it does, it doesn't, it it doesn't number on society because now you're trying to create this vision of something else, but it's kind of mind blowing to think about. What do you think about the the idea of exact repeatability?
1: I think like anything else, it it all comes through the lens and the filter of our unique experience and consciousness. So you can repeat the exact same thing over and over and over again. Even one person will look at it differently in 2023 than they looked the same thing in 2019 because of the myriad of experiences they've had between then and now the exact same thing, the exact same word, the exact same concept, phrase, ideology, whatever you want to call it, everything will be changed a little bit on the margins because this is a constantly shifting and evolving kaleidoscope and everything that moves through the singular point of now Mm. is always going to be changing and shifting and morphing and whatever you want to call it. So now, now take that writ large that with everybody and it's constantly changing and and it's the nature of all things to be constantly changing, shifting in motion. So exact repeatability can only give us, I think, some kind of guidelines and parameters about a general idea, but that general idea is going to change. It's like this greatest, it's like the cosmic game of telephone. It's going to (laughs) change so, so much over time. It will almost be unrecognizable when it's all said and done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, it brings to my mind this idea that, you know, the idea of a literate culture and by literate, I mean, you know, somebody that has a, the phonetic alphabet and, you know, all the measurement systems that go with it. It kind of seems the more that we, the more literate I become and the more literate society becomes, the more detached they get from reality. You know, it's oh, yeah. a weird thing to think about because yeah. the, the more we try to measure things, the more we leave stuff out because, okay, we can't measure that. So let's just leave that out you know, when you look at science today and who doesn't love science, probably gonna mm-hmm. think of a few people, but you know, when, when you think about science, we're constantly trying to measure everything so that we can get it right. But mm. we leave out all the factors we can't measure. Like when whenever someone does a science project, they never say, okay, I did it on a Tuesday at 4 PM. Like that right. stuff's left out, but that might yep. be relevant. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about, right?
1: Oh my God, hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, I, you know, personally, I think that, what we call spirituality and mysticism is just the scientific frontier that has not yet been yeah. measured. Agreed. So I don't think there's this, this dichotomy, you know, you think of all the things that are in our modern world thousand years ago, hell, a hundred years ago right. would have been considered magic. Right. All of it. I'm certainly not the first person to have that observation, but it's, it's very true. The more I think about it, everything that we, this conversation you and I are having right now, Tell tell somebody 100 years ago, just not a thousand, forget that, 100 years ago, that someone in Virginia and someone in Hawaii are going to be having a real-time conversation where they can see each other. So that's magical. That's like that's the laws of physics as we understand them can't support that. Like, okay, cool. As you understand them, that's great. And as a lot. And, and as we understand things in 2023, there's a whole lot that would make no sense to us right now that we consider magical and mystical and woo that's the stuff of fiction writers and that's an interesting story you know Jules Verne was certainly an interesting character in the 19th century when he was talking about going to the moon mm. that was considered the realm of mysticism and woo and this that and the other great fiction right yeah, yeah okay <laughs> i think everything eventually comes into the realm of science as long as we have an open mind to it and it all starts to make sense i think we just have to be open to it say just because we don't understand it Yet. Yet is the word. Give ourselves the grace of yet. Mm. Doesn't mean it's not real.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. I and when I look at it from that angle, you know, when I look back at the idea of time and humanity, it seems like one of the constant things we always do is get it wrong. Like the, cla- the the planets are not in spheres. We're not the center mm-hmm. of the universe. And if you look back at that angle, you even take history, for example, and you're like, history is just the written opinion of somebody else. It's, oh, it's yeah. you know, and there's all these different dimensions of truth, whatever the hell that is. And if you could just take all that and set it aside, you go, okay, no one really knows where we're going. But as yeah. is, is, is disturbing as that can be, it also creates a really beautiful freedom for you to create your own future. Be like, okay, look, why, why am I living by all these people's books and rules and stuff and mm-hmm. ideas? Why don't I just try to create my own? And, it, and in that thought is a new fire that begins to burn inside of you, right?
1: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the, then you realize the entire world is a blank canvas and you've yeah. got a paintbrush. Yeah, yeah. And how cool is that? And you realize yeah, you've been staring at the other paintings forever, painted by other people at the yep. time of their own consciousness, and you realize why in God's name, am might be to that painting. I can look at it. I can study it. I can understand it. But why does that have to be my roadmap and my guide? Yeah. Why? I mean, you think about some of the things that were encoded into, and, and not even just talking, you know, religious morality, but law, just right. law itself that are horrifying beyond words not to even comprehend based on our own evolution of consciousness. Hell, in this country, the land of the free, there was a time when black Americans were considered three-fifths of a human being Yep. I mean, you talk about that out loud today. And aside from like a very, thankfully, fringe minority, that is like a shockingly, like, you're like incredulous even listening to that. But yet that wasn't codified into law. That was a paintbrush written by people at a different consciousness. We thankfully have our own blank cam- blank canvas every single day. Every single day we have it. And we have our own markers. We have our own paintbrushes. So we create new ones, man. That's exciting. Okay. So do you think... I, I've had this realization, and it, it it's
0: been first off for anybody that doesn't know me, like I'm a huge fan of psychedelics. I think that for me, maybe it's, If you asked Matt Zeman, he would say psychedelics are for everyone, even though his new book doesn't. It kind of talks about that. We should check out that book. It's an awesome book. But I believe that the psychedelic experience can help you shatter paradigms. It can help you become the best version of yourself, and it can help you see the world in a way in which you may not have seen it. That may be by changing sense ratios. But for me, it's something that I use to see the world differently. And it's also something that helped me begin to understand that I am an artist in this world of blank canvases. And I do have my Posca pens and I do have all the resources are here. And so does everybody else. And for me, one of the greatest epiphanies that I had came through the death of my son in a tragedy. It seems that tragedies, as horrible as they are, can be the catalyst that propel you to begin writing your own script. Was there something that happened to you that, that made you do that? It was a tragedy. Now, how do you think tragedy is related to it?
1: Man, it's, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot for sure. I would say um, one of the the key things that really, there were there were a number, I would say, of kind of checkpoints in my okay. life that kind oh, of I've each, done. you know, kind of were, were, yeah. were points in the road where I could have turned inward or I could expand right. it. And I've done both at different checkpoints. I mean, I've I've thankfully, and I'm glad I did actually, because I've I've been able to experience what it's like to have life kicking the teeth, and to go inward when that happens, and to look at yourself as a victim and say things didn't work out the way I wanted, so I'm gonna lose my shit, and I'm gonna, you know, this sucks and this and that, and the that person who did it to me, screw them, you know, and 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 all that, and then I've also experienced the, the other side of it, is how do you how do you transmute that? How do you use that as your jet fuel? How do you say okay? This is what happened what do i do with it now how do i use this as a catalyst for growth and change and, and expansion and all that i think about my f- i've had two jobs in my life which were my absolute favorite jobs and i love them and i was living in complete flow and i was in my zone of genius and every day i look forward to going to work and i was yeah. unceremoniously shit canned from both of them <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. Now, it's such a dark sense of humor the world has. I'm telling you, man. And, and, and I you know, I will be the first to admit when I screw something up and I'm not good at my job and I've been not good at lots of jobs I've had. I was freaking really good at both of these jobs. <laughs> There's a lot of people on LinkedIn watching this who know how damn good I was, at least at one of them. Um, and then I was just, I was, and for different reasons, right. and neither of them were justified, but I don't say this like in a victim blame thing, it's just like real talk here, but I I have come to understand why that happened because I got really comfortable in both of them and I was never going to grow.
0: I would have worked
1: mm. each place the rest of my life. I had no impetus to grow, to change, to expand. None. like it was a universe stepping in like, all right, you got too comfortable. You didn't come here to have a life of comfort. That's not how this works, dude. So we're going <laughs> to kick you in the ass and you're going to hate us for it and get, get ready, buckle up because you're in for, you're in for a treat. And then each time, I went from the polarity of doing something I absolutely loved and was in my zone of genius to doing something I viscerally despised, and was in my zone of hell and contraction and limitation, and those were mostly sales jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and man, misery does not begin to begin to contemplate it. About twelve years ago, I was at my lowest point, and it was after mm. I one of these jobs that kind of shuffled me off the side and I ended up doing a sales job, which I, I, the people were wonderful and I love them. The people were the best people I'd ever met and they were extremely helpful and supportive, but the job itself, I would have rather than working in a goddamn coal mine (laughs) (laughs) legit. Like I, I mean, I couldn't even begin to tell you how far from alignment with my own soul and my own passion and my own talents this was. And I did it like a lot of people just to pay the bills. That's it. Yeah got to keep a roof over your head and it got me in such a dark place i went into the deepest depression of my life i was um i used to, i had something that i called uh the triple s which was um what the hell is it <laughs> the um the the suicide subway strolls that's what i, I called wow. it, it triple s suicide subway strolls and it was um subway sandwiches actually not the actual like trains. okay okay and it was a subway by where I used to work and it was like the worst job of my life. And I used to go there a couple of times a week and I'd go there and I'd get a sub and I would eat it while I was walking around. I didn't want to go back to the office. And every day I'd walk around and I contemplate how to end my life while I was like eating like, you know, meatball marinara. Yeah. By the way, if you're going to end your life, meatball marinara is not a bad <laughs> last meal. I'm just saying, I'm not encouraging <laughs> anybody to like end their life by their own hand for LinkedIn. Don't ban us. Don't do any of (laughs) that. Right. Right. Not, yeah, this is just like real talk over here, you know? Uh, So I I realized only in retrospect, I had to experience that too. I needed to be in that place. I needed to understand what extreme contraction felt like Mm. energetic when you just go inside and all routes of possibility and light are cut off from you. And you're just, you're lost in your own darkness entirely. I'm at this point in my life back then. And I felt there's no, there's no reason to get up in the morning anymore. There's no joy left. All my best days are behind me. You know, that's it. I'm I'm stuck in this goddamn job that I hate. I am living a life I hate. I'm not me. And if this is all life is, then I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not interested in it. Like, I'm just not, period. I'm not interested in it. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to subscribe to this whole, well, life is supposed to be hard and you're su- it's supposed to be this and it's supposed to be that, you know, what I call pain porn. You know, a lot of people yeah. kind of glorify the suffering a lot. And at the time, I don't want to hear it because I also didn't believe I was connected to anything greater than myself. I believe that was different and separate from the world around me. And because of that, you see yourself at odds with the world around you and you don't see yourself moving through experience. You see yourself as a victim of experience. And the ego is completely in control. It's like your, your value. And this was also when I internalized the value that was given to me by others, which is what is a man supposed to be in this world? Hmm. A man's supposed to be somebody successful doing what they love. And I was making good money, too. That was the thing. But I was miserable, miserable. And I internalized this message of, well, guess what, man? You failed. You failed. You were supposed to be this and you blew it. You failed. And everybody would be better off without you because of that. So something, something interesting happened, which was it brought me right to the brink and then it walked me back. And I don't exactly know how that happened, (laughs) but it did. It walked me a little bit back, but it still kept me like one foot in. Mm -hmm. I never totally left. And it was the pandemic, which was the real catalyst to propel me out because the pandemic actually brought me to my wow! I can't believe I'm saying this on a live show. This is incredible. I never told this story publicly, but what the hell? Here we are, right? Yeah. Um, so long story short, I, I had a lot of um, PTSD from childhood experiences, this, that, and the other. And it led to some very extreme somatic experiences when, when that would be triggered. So a lot of veterans, dogs, loud noises, anybody who has PTSD can tell you. Loud noises, sudden loud noises, extreme loud noises, slamming, that kind of thing, explosions, not good. Triggers you, gets you, in, get to in like a fight or flight space. Um, it was early April of 2020, and it was during the height of lockdowns. Like, so you know, no one's going anywhere. You were thankfully in Hawaii at the time. were you? Yeah, I in Hawaii was. Hawaii? I was. So, you were in a pretty good place to ride this out, man. And, and yeah. God bless you for it. Yeah, I was not. I was a half a mile away from the Pentagon. So mm. we were like, we were in the, you know, we were in the belly of the beast, and it was extremely. It was a bad situation where we were there were constant noises coming from all because everyone was at home all day long so there were doors slamming and balconies slamming constantly and people arguing and fighting like in all directions so my fight or flight reflexes are are up and up and up and up and up and up and up up, to the point where i am drowning in this this sense of like extreme hypervigilance and I'm in this combative relationship with all my neighbors and with life itself, and we're in the middle of lockdowns. And I'm an extrovert, yeah. so being locked down, not good, brother. Right? Not good. So I, I look out, I look out of my balcony window. and I'm up on the uh, 13th floor, and I said, "Okay, all right. It has until the end of April. If I can't get this sorted by the end of April, then I can't. I can't do this anymore. Can't live like this anymore." it came back to that whole i didn't think i was part of something bigger i didn't think i had written this story for myself i thought I was just separate from the entire experience so what really catalyzed me was when i had that moment i felt i felt something divinely step in and say there's a way out of this but you have to be open to it i said all right all right what do you got for me and that's when i started writing a book called leaving 2020. And it it took me and put it in a character in the book who was in New York and went to the top of his building also in the beginning of April in 2020 and was going to jump. And he actually did jump. So I took myself through what would happen if I actually jumped. What would the next stage of that story look like? And in this character, he did jump. He got halfway down. And while I got halfway down, he got transported into a world which was a halfway portal between life and death. And he met people from all around the world who were also in the throes of 2020 and desperately trying to escape. And they had to find their way out together. So it became this metaphor for what life was like on Earth in 2020, how we felt cut off from each other, cut off from the light, mm. cut off from hope, cut off from luminosity. And how the hell do we get out of that? Because we're all in this together. and the process of writing that book started opening my eyes to what this whole story really was about. And it, it really, in some ways saved my life. And then um, it really opened my eyes to the nature of things. And and it kind of came through me in that regard. So I'm really grateful for all those experiences that, that brought me to this point, because now I have a lot of empathy for people who are still in that place. I have deep empathy for people who are there. And I don't like any dismissive language around them. Of you know, just ah, what the hell? It's all in your head. Get out of it. Well, yeah, but but it's much deeper than that. It's a disconnection from the light. It's a perceived illusory disconnection, but it is still lived disconnection. You know? Man, dude, thanks for sharing that. That's yeah.
0: that's sure. a dark, dark spot, man. And you know, is it? Do you feel that like while you may not. I found this to be with people who have experienced deep tragedy is that it never really leaves you. Like you can always go back mm. there. You may not yeah. be at the precipice and want to jump again, but you can mm. walk right back to that cliff and look over and be like, yep, that's where, it oh, was. Yeah. that's the scene of the oh, crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man.
1: It's, it stays with you. It's, yeah. you know, it's like the, um, it's like, it's like a stain on a white dress, you know, it's wash it out. It's still there. It's, it'll always be there. And, there comes a point where you integrate it into your experience and you yeah. don't try to whitewash it you don't try to you know move beyond it as if it never happened because the minute you fear it it will come back you have to just have to see it and when it comes back you're like ah oh, there you are again all right sit down have a beer let's do this yeah you know yeah
0: it's it's interesting to sometimes where something dies becomes fertile soil for something to grow, whether it's yeah. someone you've lost or whether it's a spot that some, something you lost or some part of yourself. But it's, it seems to me, maybe this is the idea of growth, but if you, if, if you want a new life to grow something inside you has to die and it's oh, yeah. so, Freaking sad to think about because we love these things. And when part of something we love dies, whether it's a part of you that you love, a different version of yourself and the world's like, hope you had fun with that one. It's we're going to have to kill that off now. <laughs> You're yeah. like, what, what are you talking about? I got to kill that. Yeah. Off. That's my favorite part. And they're like, yep, that's why yep. I'm going to kill it.
1: <laughs> Gotta go. It'll, it'll keep you stuck there. It will. Yeah. You can love it. And it could be a person. It could be an activity. Yeah. It could be whatever. But like, if it, if it's not helping you move forward, it, it will one way or the other. It will die off, and sometimes it will be easy, and most times it will not be. Yeah, it's, it'll it's be a bitch.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think like if, if you put it in the perspective of if we don't
1: kill this thing you love, then it'll kill you.
0: <laughs> like that's crazy now, to think about, right?
1: I had I had a, I had a, um, there were a couple of, a couple of friends in my life over the over the course of the years that this manifested in, in different ways. And they were very, 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 very close to me. And the relationships had to end. They had to. And each time, a very painful catalyst was the thing that caused it. And at the time, I hated it like anything else. You know, painful catalysts yeah. are not fun to endure, no matter mm. who you are, no matter what you're going through. However, in retrospect, I'm grateful for those catalysts because those friendships, right. not only were they not good for me, they were not good for the other person. Right. And, you know, they weren't. And you know, when you're in it, you don't, you don't see it. You have to get that space from it to really see it for what it was. You know, one of them was with a, just a horrendous malignant narcissist. And I realized, you know, because I'm, I'm an empath, narcissism Mm -hmm. and empath, you know, you know, the whole dynamic, you know, uh, you know, like the the leech on the sap tree, you know, so not, not good. And, but I needed a catalyst to have that happen. Another one was, you know very good friend and we were caught i would say in a cycle of you know the you know the word commiseration you know it's like co misery it's what it was <laughs> yes. it's like co misery each feeding and fueling the other's misery each feeding and fueling the narrative of being victims of a hostile universe and screw the universe and and all that and like and and feeding each other that all the time whenever each one of us was going through something the other one would step right in with this message of support, like, hey, I got you. Yeah, life sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, sucks that happened to you. You'll never, yeah, it sucks that you just can't get out of this no matter how hard you try and neither can I. And the other one was like, yeah, that really sucks, doesn't it? And, and you keep feeding each other that you're eating from the same table and the table is feeding you po- both poison. Mm. And you d- you're eating small doses of the poison every day. You don't realize what it's doing. It's killing you. It's killing you but you don't realize it because it's like the small doses and you think you're there, you think it's an act of love. You think this person's struggling and I'm helping them out because I see them and I'm, and I'm there with them while others like, ah, snap out of it. Like, no, no, I'm there with you. I'm not going to tell you to snap out of it. Like I see you in your pain. You realize you're not doing anything to help them out of that pain. You're just fueling the narrative, that the pain is never going to end. And we were doing that to each other horrendously. And it needed a, a terrible catalyst. To come in, and ultimately drive us apart. But in retrospect, it, it had to happen for both of our sakes. Do you, do you see relationships in that manner as like a mirror? Like when you're
0: in that, like that person that you're with, or maybe the group of friends that you find yourself in, are a mirror image of who you are.
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, they say, and I really believe this. I've I've come to see it in my own life. You really are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, and the universe will mirror back to you who you think you are. And, Mm. you know, if you think that you have no value, you will attract people who also think they have no value. And you will also attract people who also think you have no value and will take advantage of you because (laughs) of that. So, but if you stand in your own power, you will attract people who stand in theirs and recognize and respect yours. And will will simply be in your circle to uplift you, to inspire you, to help you grow and expand. And you will want to do the same for them. And the more people like that you bring into your circle, the better you're going to feel about yourself, about life, about possibilities that are out there, about the expansiveness that exists, about your connection to everything out there. And that will then beget get even more people who will find their way into their circle like you shows up last week, man. And <laughs> this, is, this is what happens, right? It's this exponential growth impact. Yeah, You just put it out there and you just keep attracting more and more people into your life that are aligned with where you're going versus where you were. And then, and then the real magic is at that point, you start realizing how distant you now are from where you were and how you are never going back there. It's just not happening. You're never going to allow it to drag you back in period.
0: You know, it's, I love, I love the conversation because it, it mirrors and echoes so much, not only in my life, but so many people I've spoken to who have had a tragedy, like a a major tragedy in their life that was a turning point for them. And it starts off as like, you know, there's a lot of the, why me? God damn it, why me, man? Why, not even fair? You know, you start there, but then you realize, you know, okay, maybe I can go back to that thing. But then life's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand, you don't get it yet. Like we, that tragedy was necessary. You can never go back. Like mm-hmm. once you've seen, I've I've ripped the scales from your eyes. I'm sorry, it's painful. You can never go back. You can try. It'll be it'll be fun to watch. You know, it'll be it'll be humorous. It'll be like our friend Angel in the movie Path to Perfectia. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but you can never go back, man. You can't go back.
1: <laughs> you can't go back. And that was one of the lines in in the book Leaving 2020. Was you know the whole world was pining for a return to 2019. And remember that, like especially in the first half of 2020. Yeah. There was this like all right, fine, this, this will come and it will go, it will pass, and then life will just be back to normal and all will be well again. Remember that? Like, yeah. all we wanted, man. It's like, we've been shaken out of our boots. Let's just go back to normal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And only after that, again, that retrospect, you realize that normal sucked. Yeah. Normal totally. wasn't that great. And there was nothing great about commuting an hour and a half each way into work. Like, what was great about that? Nothing. What was great about it? being okay to show up to a party sick. Like (laughs) what the hell was ever okay about that? Now, in fairness, I never thought that was okay. A lot of people did. Not saying this pat myself on the back, but just, you know, being level with you here. I was always like, come on, really? Like you got a cold, go home. What are you doing? But now at least there's a consciousness around, maybe if you have a cold, you shouldn't go out to a party and maybe you shouldn't get other people sick. And maybe there should be a conscientiousness about that, that there didn't exist beforehand and maybe somebody shouldn't be forced to commute an hour and a half each way, particularly if they have kids at home and they're spending every last dollar they earn here on child support. And what if somebody has an inflammatory condition and they need to be close to home to tend to that? And what if a lot of different reasons, what if they don't have a car that works particularly well, you know, what if they are at high risk of contracting a disease, maybe they shouldn't be taking the Metro every day with 10,000 of their closest friends and they can do the job just as well from home. And guess what maybe it's better if somebody can get an extra 10 hours of sleep a week. Maybe that's a good thing, you know.
0: Yeah. Maybe they'll be
1: healthier and more productive and happier. And so all these things that came into consciousness because of this shift, why would we want to go back to a time before that? Yeah. I can't Wait. understand why not.
0: Yeah. So this is an interesting concept. I I often find myself using this this phrase that's something along the lines of as above, so below. And you and I have already spoken about how the relationships we have are sort of mirror images of ourselves. We've also spoken in sort of a meta fashion about how each of us, and probably a lot of people listening to this, have had this crisis of consciousness, be it a tragedy, Mm -hmm. a near death, a, a potential suicide, or you know, something in their life that brought them to the precipice of disaster. And it seems to me, if if we just look at just the two of us talking right now, we've spoken about our stories a little bit, and then we bring up COVID. It's almost like the world, our society has had its own precipice. Like the world mm-hmm. itself was standing on the precipice, like, I'm going to do it. It's going to end everything. Yep. You know, and if we look at it like that, might it be that the world, that consciousness, COVID was sort of, COVID was sort of the consciousness precipice where things that was the tragedy for all of us. And now it's slowly beginning to make its way into a better world for everybody. Is that too positive of a spin to put on it?
1: I don't think so. I think what, I think what it's done is it's accelerated that consciousness polarization. Okay. So I think there is this mass consciousness rising and you've seen it in the ether. I've seen it in the ether. I've experienced it and it's, it's palpable and it's everywhere and it's so cool. You're seeing people from different backgrounds and different countries and different religions and, and they're all, there's this thing that there's this, it's happening and you can feel it subatomically, it's happening. Conversely, there are those who for one reason or another, they don't wanna get on the train. They wanna stay stuck in that narrative of life sucks, everything sucks, screw everything, screw the universe, whatever. I'm not saying this to judge them, you know, I have, I have deep, Deep compassion. I have dear friends of mine who are in this place. I have deep compassion for them. But their own acceleration towards that negative polarity is, is increasing as well. And I think COVID drew a wedge on that. So you're seeing people who are nastier online, they're, you know, the trolls and, you know, this, this deep isolation that's taken root with a lot of people, and they've lost a lot of their friendships and human connections, and they've just gone deeper and deeper into themselves. And you're seeing this with the rise of certain figures who speak to these people. So Andrew Tate is a great example of that. You know, he's developed the following with people who are right in this ballpark, who've developed this incredible hostility toward women. They develop this incredible hostility toward life, toward toward civilization itself. And they see somebody who's coming with this message of, you know, you do you. You do you. Fuck the world. You do you. And like, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna do me. And this, this gets internalized. So this negative polarity of isolation. And kind of self-centeredness is increasing too. So you're seeing, like, I think you're just seeing it. And COVID blew a hole open in it, blew a hole open in this kind of mushy middle. And you're seeing in politics too. There's there are no moderates anymore. It blew a hole in all of it. So it's like you're going in one direction or the other, in almost every facet of life right now. So I'm I'm not trying to, opine on it to judge it. More just kind of like take a step back and like, ah, huh, isn't that something? Yeah,
0: isn't it, that interesting? It is interesting, and I. Do you think that demographics plays a role in that? Like there's a really good book called The Fourth Turning by uh, mm-hmm. I think Levi Strauss is uh, maybe that's a pair of jeans. But I think there's a guy named Strauss is the author, but got, we'll be talented. <laughs> it's a very tough book. It's like denim. But uh, yeah. so but in the book they talk about demographics and they talk about the way in which generations churn and there's this pattern of life. And it's interesting because if you look at how many the, the the swollen generation of baby boomers and you see so many of them, I think there was a stat that said there was 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day for the last 10 years. Yeah, And w- it would make sense that if we look at our – if we look at the human body as all of the bodies together, a large portion of our body is dying off and know there's something to be said about the unrealized dreams of those facing the mortality experience and Mm -hmm. the angst that comes at the end of life and if there's a large part of our body that's on the precipice of death like why wouldn't there be so much oh i gotta get mine we gotta Mm -hmm. go do this one last thing man let's make one last beer run man we can do this thing you know yep have you have you thought about it from a demographic point of view and I've given a lot of
1: thought to this. I, uh, I, a lot of, I have a lot of clients who are baby boomers and, you know, so writing for them and having to write in their voice has been an interesting experience for me having to kind of learn from their perspective about things. And one thing I found, and this is, you know, I say everything generally, of course, there are many exceptions to this, but I feel like baby boomers writ large are the first generation who've yet to accept their own mortality. Mm and and you see this manifested in a, in a million different ways and i think a lot of it there's a lot there's a lot of baby boomer messianism kind mm-hmm. of in their heyday of you know we are the ones we've been waiting for and this, you know <laughs> this world is a, is a cold dark backwards place but we are the saviors mm-hmm. who have come in to shed the light and to show you all the path and well, it's weird when a light giver has to push daisies, isn't it? It's like a strange uh, thing. Well, it's like, well, wait a second. Now we're supposed to save the damn planet. We can't leave this joint until we do that. And we have a war in freaking Europe and we got a pandemic. Like, we got racism. We got all this stuff. We can't leave until this is fixed. So we're not right. going anywhere. Give me the pill. Hook me up. Do whatever you got to do. Like, I'm not going anywhere until this is done. So whereas, you know, the, the greatest generation, like, hey, listen, you live, you die, you do your thing and that's right. it. You know, and, and before that, that was just the fate of completes is how it is. The circle of life. The boomers like, hell no. Uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> it's interesting to me. It's I, but, and I, and interestingly right behind them, you know, as a couple of extras, I, I think we can appreciate this. Totally. Like, no, we're, we're totally going to die. It's cool. Yeah. Yep. What are you yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, I have that same exact, you know, it's so interesting to look at the, the, you call propaganda that we were brought up on, like, you know, we had like Top Gun, like, you know, you're mm-hmm. going to go out there, you're going to get the girl, you're going to fight for yourself, you know, you're going to stand up to bullies. I remember when, Bo- yeah. when Mike Brady had to pull Bobby aside, but like, hey man, don't let that bully talk to your sister like that. You're going right. to punch him in the face.
1: Yep. <laughs> Karate kid. I mean, yeah. the zeitgeist of like those years, it's like you stand up, you know, revenge of the nerds, you kick the bully yeah. in the ass. It's like, you don't, you know, it's, that was just, that was the, uh, that's the culture back then.
0: Yeah it's it's i'll send you you should i'll send you the title of this book because it gets into all of that and what the what the guy talks about is like look this these are themes that happen and they happen repeatedly on a schedule and it it really brings out the question like okay if we were brought up on this certain ideas then what is the responsibility of our generation and he talks about for xers look your job is to like Okay, tell you, you know, we're the bridge between the boomers and the millennials. And mm. part of the job is the Xer is to like help the boomers go grace. So be like, listen, you guys were given a lot of stuff. Okay. Mm. Like, I know you're the Messiahs. Yeah, yeah. Population, yeah, that's happening. It's you guys, right? Greatest. I get it. But these millennials are not lazy. They're actually probably smarter mm. than all of us. Okay. Oh, yeah. And you guys gotta figure that out. And then our job is tell the millennials, yeah, yes, yes. They they have everything given to them, but not all their ideas are bad. You yeah. know, and it's it's just this weird sort. And it, it just spoke to me like, holy crap, this book is just laying it out there, man. And, and it yeah. talks about the Gen Xers like, yeah, you guys, you guys got your own problems too. But mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating idea to step back and see the world through the ideas of demographics. And it, it's almost psychedelic in a way, the same way that like a, a really big dose of psilocybin or LSD will put you in the perspective of a third person. So too, does this book or the idea of demographics go, oh, I'm just part of this thing. And my mm-hmm. role is over here. And maybe yep. my role is not to have that, but your, your role is definitely, and I think for exers, it's, it's to, to step out of the system mm-hmm. and be like, okay, I'm going to step out of the system because I was a victim of it. And I'm going to try to help some other people not get in it. And, but it's a fascinating idea, this whole idea of, of there. And I bring it mm-hmm. up because when, I, when I'm reading like the path to perfectia, I see that you're painting a picture for people to create a new paradigm or a new way to see the world of like, hey, maybe it is a dream. And if it is a dream, what are you doing with it? If you're the self-author of this life, get to it. Let's go. Start writing some
1: things down, man. Let's go. You're know, (laughs) you here to create. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, especially in this LinkedIn day and age and social media day and age, we've, I think, falsely created the world into- this division of the creator and the consumer Mm -hmm. and a lot of people believe that, well, I'm not a creator, you know, the hell you aren't. You are not just a creator. You are creation. Mm. If you are creation, how could you not be a creator? By essence of being part of creation, you, everything you do, every word you say, every experience you have is taking part in the greater creative story. You're a creator within creation. So why not take that to its logical conclusion? This idea of like, well, a conversation I had at a coffee shop with my friend doesn't count as creation. Of course, it counts as creation. Everything you do say and think is creation. So why would you feel disconnected from that? And this is, I think, one thing that I try to impress upon people in my 40 Going On 4 podcast and some other stuff that I do is this idea of you are creation. Lean into that and that is where you're going to find your creative and happy flow. Like, what's the secret of happiness, right? How do I get happy in life? Be creation. That's it. Be yeah. creation. Lean into not simply what you want to do. Lean into who you are. You are creation. And to get back to the example of the kids going out and playing football, what is that if not just an act of creation? You've created a football game. You've created the experience of a football game with your buddies. That's it and they're in a state of pure bliss and joy and presence just doing that.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like learning to lean into the act of creation takes away the resentment that maybe you had in life?
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt, <laughs> completely. Cause I, I didn't feel like, you know, when I when I was was fired from like the job that I love more than anything and, and I felt like my purpose in life was done and over and I was just some cog in the wheel some spoke on a machine you know yeah um honestly actually i screwed those two up whatever Uh, (laughs) i i feel like i was separate from everything and i was a a victim of a larger creation that was using me rather than a co-creator within it Mm. i felt all my agency was gone and when you feel all your agency is gone you will find yourself in a very bitter and hateful place in life. And this will happen to people in all different facets of life. This will happen. And you see it every single day on social media. People who feel like they've been screwed over by somebody or by the world or by a structural this or that. And I'm not saying any of this to minimize what they're going through, right? This is this is their battle to fight. And this is their experience to have. And I wish them well and I wish them joy and peace and love and inspiration on that journey always. But when you see yourself as separate from that thing, then you will always see yourself in conflict, not only with that thing, but with the world around you and then ultimately with yourself. And you'll never find happiness in that place. Never, never. Because let's say you beat the thing. Let's say you do it. Let's say somebody who is a... You know i'll use the example of um you know child trafficking and i use it in an yeah. article i wrote the other day let's say you're a crusader to end child trafficking and if you are god bless you seriously you're doing that's like talk about god's work man that's that's yeah. some good stuff let's say you devote your life to ending child trafficking and you do it i guarantee your work's not going to be done and i guarantee you won't find happiness happiness is going to be all right well i got to find the next thing to fix we got to cure leukemia because like my aunt died of leukemia we got to fix that it be a crusader to end leukemia. And let's say you find a cure for leukemia. It's going to be the next thing. There will be no happy moments at any point in this life. This is not to say people should not try to end trial trafficking, or we should not try to find a cure for leukemia. The saying though, that if you tie up your happiness in the outcome of that thing happening, you're never going to find it. Never. The happiness has to be in the doing. The happiness is like, you know what? I'm happy that I have now reached the consciousness where I am a person who is striving to end this versus a person who is actively aiding and abetting it. I'm happy that I've now reached a place in my own development where I see this for the problem that it is and I don't go along with it. And I'm trying to raise the consciousness of the world to bring this to an end. That brings me happiness every day. The doing, the doing Mm -hmm. of that versus like the thing being done. And I say this, you know, as as an author, once the book is published, that's when the misery begins. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Every time talk to, talk to an actor who is on a, on a movie. They'll say the same thing, long hours, this, that, and the other, but the juice and the magic was in the filming. It was in the camaraderie with the other people on the set. Talk to an athlete who just won a championship. That high goes away real quick. And then you talk about it years later. What do they talk about? What do they miss? They don't miss a ticker tape parade. They don't miss the interviews from ESPN. They don't miss hoisting up that big freaking ball and saying we did it. They don't Mm -hmm. miss that. They missed those times in the locker room with the guys just shooting the shit, going from one game to the next, struggling through the adversity. That's what they miss. It was the doing, not the achieving. That's where all the goodness was. You know, it, it brings up this idea that
0: maybe it's, maybe I, I hear it in the language mm-hmm. instead of, instead of it being a thing, it's a process. And if we start to look at our life in that way, you know, the goal, the thing is it's almost past tense, but the mm-hmm. process is now. You know, if you yeah. if you if you if you like if you look at love, like just use the word love, don't think of love as a thing, think mm-hmm. of it as a process. And I guess you can use that for life in your life. Like the idea of seeing the world as process, it forces you to live in the moment in a way, it forces you to mm-hmm. see clearly that all you can control is the meaning of now and it's already past. But now, now Mm -hmm. versus the goal or the, I wish I had that all these trappings, like, like, you know, depression or anxiety is the Mm -hmm. past or the future. But shoot, all you have is right now. And right now things are pretty Mm -hmm. good. Right now you don't have any problems right now. You're not struggling right now. It's beautiful. And if you can harness Mm -hmm. that and if someone figures out how to do it, let me know. But there it is. Right.
1: Yeah, that's a great point you brought up, and I was thinking about this today actually in my morning walk about the concept of of love and particularly romantic love. Okay. So one thing a lot of people, most people, I would say they, what do they say a lot? Right, I'm looking for love.
0: In all the wrong places. All the wrong places.
1: (laughs) All day, yeah. You obviously been in some of the bars I've been to back in the day, man. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt about that. God. Uh, it, it's so prevalent though, this idea, right? this idea of like, I'm yeah. you know, on the dating sites, this, that, I am looking for love. Let's let's unpack this. Let's like actually get into this. Yeah. Okay. Do it. You're, what you're really saying is you're looking for a romantic relationship that will make you feel loved. That's what you're really saying because there's something in you right now that does not feel loved. There's There's like some love component that feels missing. There's some hole that you're looking to fill. So you're looking for love what if you are love? Mm. what if you shift the whole paradigm to I, I'm not looking for it I am love I am love and I am going to manifest that in every interaction I have today Whether or not I meet the person in my dreams today doesn't matter. I am going to show love to the Amazon guy who's dropping off something I'm going to show love to my barista I'm going to show love to the person I'm on the LinkedIn live with yeah ah. <laughs> I'm gonna show love to everybody in the comments here I'm going to show love to everybody. Now, who do you think you're going to attract into your life if you are love versus if you are looking for love? You're going to attract somebody else who's also looking for love, and they're not going to see you as love because they don't see themselves as love. And then if you go out on this this first date together, you're both coming from a taking energy rather than a giving energy. You're both like, well, I am looking to fill a hole in my life that I'm hoping you can fill. Because I don't really give a damn if I'm filling it for you. I yeah. need you to fill it for me. <clears throat> and they're both coming at it from that perspective. They're both trying to sell each other, you know? And they're both trying to take from each other rather than give to each other. Where the first dates that are really magic and the conversations that are magic, they're both giving to each other. Like I'm here because I want to make sure you have a great experience. Whether or not it goes anywhere, whatever. Yeah. I want to give you a great experience. And if that person comes with the same energy, I want to give you a great experience too. You know, I want to laugh with you. I want to share some fun stories. I think you might enjoy You know, yeah. I want to, I'm going to order this on the menu. I want you to have a bite because I think this is so good. I think you really, really might like this. I'm going to order this cool cocktail. You got to have a sip of this. This is really awesome. Like, mm. let's do that. Let's go see this band. And I, I think you're going to love this band. Like I love this band. So let's go see them. Cause I think you might love them too. It could be a great experience for you. I've been to this really cool art museum. They have amazing exhibits. Let's go there. Not so like I can impress you with what I know, but i it's lit me up in the past. Let's go because I think you will enjoy that. And then, oh, that's awesome. Let's go to this ice cream place I know because I've had the most amazing Sundays over there. And I think you'll really enjoy it too. And you're just giving love, just like letting it pour out of you. They're both going to come back and say that was the greatest date i ever had. And you know what? It may not become a romantic relationship because there may be points of just incompatibility. But there's nothing to say that that can't become a robust and beautiful friendship, where somebody says this is the most amazing person I met, and there's just a few things that are they're not going to like romantically be compatible, but oh my god, do I have a friend for you, and I will speak the world of you to my friend because I think you're amazing, and the, the what that can open up. So this idea like that you're looking for love, you're never going to get it. Be love, and it will be everywhere. And then you'll also be able to see those who are not coming from a place of love. If you are coming from that place yourself, you'll see it and it will be so clear to you in a way it wasn't before. It's like when you wake up and then you realize everyone else is still asleep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you'll <laughs> see people who are coming from a selfish place. You'll see they're coming from a, a standoffish materialistic. You'll see it. You'll feel it. And you're not going to be duped into it. You won't be roped into it. You'll be like I energetically, I'm not aligned with this at all. So we're good. We're good. No drama, no nothing. We're good. <laughs> Wish you well. We're all set. We're good. That's it. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's, I, I had a long talk with a, a
0: friend of mine, Dr. Jessica Rochester, and we talked about mm-hmm. self-love. And the way she defined love is we were talking about definitions, and she said that there was one that she used. And I forgot who she quoted. Forgive me for not being able to document exactly who it was, but it was something along the lines of, Love is building a space in which everyone can grow. I had never heard it like that before. I was like, wow, good. That's, that's pretty good. good right. <laughs> Man. That's
1: yeah. Good.
0: Like, cause it, it's, it's true. It's like, let's build this space where everybody can succeed. And it sounds a lot like what yeah. you were saying where, yeah. you know, it's, it's co-creation it's sharing, it's finding, it's ordering something so someone else can enjoy it. It's coming yeah. from selfless and it's, it's it's back to Alan Watts that says the only reason that you don't have the thing you want is because you want it.
1: That's, <laughs> that's it. It's as simple as that. Like, dude always nailed it, man. He had the greatest one-liners. Like he just, yeah, he had the greatest mic drop moments, like all the time. He was just amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And that's that's it. You nailed it. That's you're looking for it so you're not gonna because when you're looking for it, you're telling the universe, you're telling yourself, I don't have it. Yeah, I'm not loved i'm not loved so i need to find it I need to go out and get it to go yeah. search for it you know come and get me Come and, find. and i and i know that because i've been there i know what it feels yeah. like yeah i know what it feels like to not feel that like at least romantic love you know and and i know what that does to you 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 feel unmoored and it can drive you nuts and you can become a whole different person when that happens and not a good person and not somebody you look back on and say i want to hang out with that person at all and you realize because it's, it's there's this hole in you that you thought this thing was going to fill. And maybe it did for a while, at least on the surface. But when that left, then the hole appears again. That's why one of my favorite episodes, are you a Seinfeld fan at all? Yeah, of course. All right. One of the greatest Seinfeld moments ever, ever, and I think this was so profound, was (laughs) they were at the diner and Jerry broke up with his girlfriend. Oh, no, sorry, no, she broke up with him. Mm -hmm. She broke up with him. Like, you know, we can't see each other anymore. And he's like, okay. I'm like, wait, what? Like, yeah. No. It's been really nice dating you. And good luck. And he just gets up, takes his coat and leaves. And she's just sitting there like, what, 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 the, what? And it was just this, like, he was good. Like he didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't need her to fill this hole. He didn't have a hole. Like he's, he's Jerry Seinfeld. He's good. He's just good. Like in another episode, I think it was a deeply spiritual show masquerading as a comedy where. I think you had Jerry and George as the great protagonists, both showing different manipulations and manifestations of energy. Whereas Jerry just had this very like go with the flow kind of energy of I am whole. I have everything I need. I'm good. I'm all set. Like everything is working for me. Everything's all right. No matter what happens, like even Steven, that episode, right? Like throws it, like <laughs> Elaine takes the 20, throws it out the window. He finds it in his pocket. He's like, everything evens out for me. I'm fine. <laughs> I lost the gig here. I got a gig here. I'm fine. George, hilarious best character in the show but he lives in constant opposition to reality Mm -hmm. constant opposition to himself to other people around him This like this this like classic neurotic new yorker and you know just getting upset you know and just like everything is pissing him off all the time (laughs) because he thinks he lives in this hostile universe that's out to get him and because of that he mirrors that back to himself Mm -hmm. in every single interaction and like the comedy that the universe is playing out as it shows the example of George and the example of Jerry is just masterful, and I wonder if like greater forces were working through the writers to to really paint that out there and just to show what that dichotomy looks like in real time with real characters.
0: Yeah, I I, th- I think that you could even step back a little bit and say not only are greater forces working through that show but they're working through each one of us. And if we just take a moment to step back and see those characters playing out on ourselves, all that's left is to have a good laugh.
1: That's
0: it. And that's where Kramer (laughs) comes in.
1: (laughs) And that I think was the universe saying like, you know, something, some some things in life are just so ridiculous. This whole thing is just a giant playground Mm -hmm. that stop taking it so seriously and just laugh. And I'm going to give you a character like Kramer. So where you will step out of your like, Oh my God, everything is so serious place and just freaking laugh and just appreciate how much of a preposterous playground. This really is. I think some people are sent into our lives for that purpose. Yeah. And I think some people are, are given the gifts to do that. that are just a complete irreverence to just remind us that it's all a dream and that if it weren't a dream, nothing, this irreverent could take place. If it weren't just all a big show on a stage, like a character like this wouldn't exist. I think that's why Florida man exists. I mean, so the whole state of Florida exists. So we realize like this is like you have like a shirtless dude who's like 18 beards deep in a hurricane wrestling an alligator. That can't happen in a serious universe. It can't. The laws of physics won't allow it.
0: Oh, it's so true. It's so true. And it, it just it does bring about, you know, the gift of laughter in the darkest moments. You know, you you hear people at a funeral start laughing, you know, and like, it, it's, it's, it's
1: the gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. Like smoothing Diana in the book, you know, they're, they're, they're at the funeral and they're just cracking, they're cracking each other up the whole time. Right. And, and angels, they kind of reminding them like, yeah, it's, it's all good. Like you didn't actually lose her. She didn't actually die. Like, yeah. Her energy is still here. She's here right now in the room. You just can't perceive her, but she's here. So everyone else getting really heavy and crying. It's all, it's like a joke, you know, so you can laugh and it's Okay. And everyone else giving you the glares because you're laughing, like they're the ones who don't get it. <laughs> where you two are the ones who actually get it, like on a, on a deeper level. I would say people who laugh at funerals really get it. Yeah, they really do, get it.
0: Do you ever get people in your life, Jesse, saying, like, man, I'm sick of you, Jeff. You don't take you don't take it seriously, man. Jesus,
1: all the time. You, <laughs> I, you know, but you know, I really get. I tell you, where I really get it from, okay, is uh, the activists. Mm. And, and I know this because I used to be an activist. I was okay. a freaking hardcore, polarized political activist. And um, I got to tell you, man, it was, it was an interesting place to be because my world was very binary. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of room for laughter in activism. I'll tell you that. Because <laughs> the world is a really pretty serious place when you have like <laughs> half the country are a bunch of assholes who you need to conquer. Yeah. And beat them over the head until they're right about the thing you know that they ought to be right about and there's no room for for irreverence there's no room for any of that if everything because if you're an activist too everything's life or death right everything everything it doesn't matter what it is if it's your issue it's life or death and therefore it's not enough for it to be life or death for you because it's life or death for you it has to be life or death for everybody and that's why you know i, I wrote a piece about this the other day about how like uh, aggressor versus ally you know mm-hmm. and this idea of like if, if you give well-meaning wishes most people will reject it and say well screw you, you're you not doing enough you need to be an activist like me to fix the problem or else you're complicit in it this that and the other and people who tend to be really passionate activists the the humor ratio it really decreases the more the activism goes up and there's a really diehard inverse relationship that you that you see with this and I say this, and I know I have to caveat this, but I really mean this. I don't say this to as like an attacking way. I don't. I don't think less of people who are activists because some things. I guess anything that needs to be changed needs the energy of change behind it. So there's a role for activism, but within the activism, there has to be that space for like. But it's all still a freaking dream, and it's all like right. it's all a show, and it's an energy play, and while I can work really hard to try to like fix this thing and that's my life's work, maybe that's the mission I came here to do. I cannot take it so seriously where I start demonizing 50% of the people out there who don't agree with what I'm doing and think of them as like just walking devils. <laughs> because <laughs> then I'm coming from a bad energy. right? right. And I'm not going to put love behind fixing the thing I'm trying to fix. I'm putting hate behind it. I'm putting resentment. And I'm Because if I'm at odds with them, guess what? I'm at odds with me they are yeah. me and i am them and if i'm at odds with me and nothing getting done <laughs> nothing yeah. getting done. so so i look at the, the greatest leaders who, who made the greatest greatest impacts and they never came from a place of it's us versus them and it's always a place of it's, it's us and we're going to shine a light and the them who are over there they're going to see our light want to be part of it yeah. and that's where like, all the magic was and they also had a good sense of humor about them too Gandhi had one of the greatest senses of humor ever. <laughs> Fantastic sense of humor. It's, I mean, all, all it's the great so Irish beautiful. revolutionaries had great senses of humor. You have to
0: like because you that's some, sometimes that's all that all that you have left is is to laugh, you know. And I um I recently had an interesting experience where you know I, I was a UPS driver for twenty six mm. years. And I found myself and to shout out to all the UPS drivers, the truck drivers and anyone stuck in a job that you, Mm -hmm. that you love, but you also hate. Mm -hmm. And I, I found myself in a position where all I had, all I had left was to laugh. Like I, I'll give you an, I'll share this quick story with you. So I, I found myself being in a world where all that mattered was production. Like I loved parts of being a UPS driver and like, I really enjoyed being out on the road and staying in shape and meeting all these cool kids and, for people that don't know, as a UPS driver, like I I like to see myself as like a, a, like a sort of like a white blood cell in a neighborhood. Like I get to know all the kids, man. I got to know all the people and you get to like open a door into people's lives that you would never see. I got to meet so many cool people that I never would before. And I would carry around in my backpack, I'd carry around little magic tricks or little trinkets and all the kids on my route, man, I would always have like a magic trick to show them. And I would see them grow from like the age of eight to like 15 and get to be part of their lives. And so, but as UPS has changed, as I went from a private company to a public company, I really got to see the level of service be eroded. And all of a sudden, all that mattered was money. And all that mattered was production. And I worked hard to fight against that. And in the later years of my career, as as working from 19 to 48, all of a sudden I saw the level of management change. And all of a sudden my managers got younger and younger mm-hmm. and the art, but the argument stayed the same. Yeah. And I, I, I found myself to so the last meeting I had was we were talking about production. And I, I had a meeting with my, my manager who was like in their twenties, God rest their soul. Great kid. And they said, George, we, we don't think that you're living up to the production standards. And then I, then I started laughing. I'm like, really? You don't think that? And I'm like, why not? And they're like, well, According to our numbers, George, you're not hitting this mark. And I'm like, oh, do you think that maybe you're not measuring all the variables? Mm -hmm. And they just stare at me. They're like, what do do you mean? (laughs) And I start laughing. And I'm like, well, I don't think that you're accounting for all the variables. Let's look at your metrics here. And they're like, okay, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Well, we're measuring stop count. We're measuring miles. And according to ours, we plug this in, George, you're, you're not doing enough stops per hour. Okay what about road conditions mm-hmm. what about the weight of the packages what about the amount of time it takes to talk to customers to solve problems because i don't see that in your variables
1: Yep.
0: They just stare at me what <laughs> i start laughing i'm like okay you're familiar you guys graduated high school math right yes i have a college degree george do you have one i'm like i don't have one i'm like well this would be perfect then what is the Pythagorean theorem? A squared plus B squared is C squared, right? Okay, I'm with yeah. you so far. Well, if we don't count all the variables, are you going to get the right equation? They just stare at me. and They're like, George, I don't oh, think you're man. taking this seriously. And so, dude, beat him over the head with reason. Dude, I'm just crushing them. And then so I back them into a corner, and they're like, Okay, I see what you're saying. I'm, I'm gonna have to call my boss in here. Let's meet tomorrow. So a month goes by and then I meet with like his boss and we go through the whole thing again. And I'm sitting there like, okay, well, how does that make sense? God damn it, George, you're not taking this seriously. And I'm like, no, I I am. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. So then I meet like this goes on for like a year and a half. And finally I meet with like the building manager and like uh, the whole conversation. And I'm like, okay, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And so long story longer, I figure out it's not a bug, it's a feature. And I meet with the district manager. And and like this guy is, he's, he's hardcore. He's telling me all this stuff. I point out all the flaws in the argument. A month later, I'm I get fired, you know, and I'm like, oh, and, and they bring me in to fire me and they say, you know what, George, we've we've just had enough. Like you are not taking this seriously. And we're gonna have to let you go. And in that meeting, I just start dying of laughter. <laughs> And they're like, what's so goddamn funny, George? We're firing you right now. Dude, I'm just laughing because that's all I can do. Like I've yeah. pointed out everything that you guys have done is wrong. What else are you going to do? It, but here's the kicker. I'm like, what are you firing me for? They're like dishonesty.
1: <laughs> and
0: I'm like, dude, you're firing me for the very thing I'm pointing out
1: to you. Dude,
0: it, it's so hilarious to me.
1: Awesome. That's amazing. <laughs>
0: Right. But you figured it out, man.
1: You you yeah. were on the wall. Like that's that's the deal.
0: It is. It is. And that's all that's left sometimes is to have the courage to laugh. Because that's all you can do. What was gonna oh, yeah. happen to me what was gonna happen to me, regardless of that. I, here's the flaw, and I'm not gonna back down from it. And it's funny. And they're like, it's not funny. It and I'm like, it is
1: funny. So it totally is. But they like the that story. No, I love that story. I think it, it speaks to like humor is the, is the great equalizer and it's the right. great transmuter of energy. Yeah. And it can take really tough things. And, and, you know, I perform with a lot of comedians back in the day who, man, they went through some shit in their lives and yeah. they, they transmuted it through humor on stage. Like they were able to turn that pain into a source of, of laughter for them and for everybody in the audience. And, and granted, didn't fix their problems or didn't solve right. their state of mind, but at least it, it was like a release valve when it yeah. was overheating, it was a release valve, to like just kind of let it out. And you need good release valves because Man, if you don't have good release valves, you're going to find some other ones. Yeah. But it's everyone's expensive. going to find one at some point. And when that gasket blows, man, you don't want to be anywhere near that situation if they have not found ways to like healthily release it. This is where, like, the guys in the trench coat with the friggin' high-powered rifle go on the tower. And, like, it's – I mean, this is what happens if they don't have those release valves. So – these are also people that don't tend to laugh a lot. I've never seen a comedian behind a mass shooting. I'm just saying, we're not always the most pleasant <laughs> characters to be around, but we're also not the ones you see in the 11 o'clock news. So for whatever that's worth, you know, uh, yeah. humor is important. And if, if more people laughed, less people would die. How's that for a tagline?
0: Man, that's yeah. a great tagline. If more people laughed, less people would die. Yeah, it's so it's it's. I think it's the ultimate idea is that don't take it. So don't take it personal. Don't take it so seriously. Right.
1: Yeah. Anybody who who does anything calamitous in this world is somebody who takes themselves and the world around them very seriously. There's, there's just no, there's no irreverent people who lead invasions of other countries. There's no, you know, whimsical, comical people who go shoot up a school. Like it just, it doesn't happen period. It doesn't. Now people can say, wow, you don't take it seriously enough. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that person doesn't take it seriously enough and shit. I wish everybody else didn't take it seriously either because what a better place this would be. We're, we're, we don't make problems better by taking them seriously because the more playful we are, the more we're actually going to find problems. And i mean, I say more find solutions to the problems. Like we're going to find right. the problems, but find solutions because of that. The playfulness creates expansive connections. The same thing you're tapping into with LSD and every other psychedelic, you're you're now creating you're you're tapping into the field. The more you laugh the more open you are, the more closed you are, the more shut off you are from it. You know, the, the more seriously you take the problem. I always said you want to you want a piece in the Middle East, just get them all sitting around, have a lot of cannabis and have a lot of cartoons. Yeah. And and like really funny cartoons where like anvils are falling on people's heads.
0: <laughs> They'll hash
1: that shit out in an afternoon. I'm telling you, like they yeah. will. And and anything else in the world where people are taking like, both sides are very entrenched like this is very serious. Well, this is more serious. It's more serious. And You'll never, ever come to a place of magnanimity that way. You have to just release the valve like ugh, maybe it all is just, just, a, just a freaking dream. Maybe it's just a game. <laughs> and if it's a game, like let's let's not be assholes the way we play it. You know, how about that? How about that for a concept? Let's just let's have fun with it. And yeah. like I'll play and you'll play and we'll all play and we'll have fun. That's what comedy is. It's having fun with it. That's why I do satire like several times a week on LinkedIn <laughs> about everything under the sun that a lot of other people take really seriously. I've, I've satirized Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I've mm-hmm. satirized COVID. I've satirized DEI issues. I mean, you name it, stuff that everyone is taking seriously of the hilt. I have no sacred cows. I will satirize everything. A lot of people like it. A lot of people don't. God bless them all. Doesn't matter to me. I'm going to still do it. That's it. Yeah. it. You know, it, I love the term hash it out. Like, where does that come from? It's people yeah. smoking a lot of hash, That's right? What it is, man. It's, <laughs> out. it's not hash browns, although you could hash it out over that too. You could. You I totally mean, hash browns right. are awesome. Right. Yeah. They're really tasty. You know,
0: if we take the idea of satire, like it, it seems to me, you know, do you think that it, being in Hawaii, like you're subject to a lot of different cultures. And it seems that satire seems to be something that comes from the West. Like if you use mm. satire with a particularly Asian culture, mm. they don't seem to really get the idea. Maybe not. Now I'm not no. painting with such a broad brush, but different mm. cultures have different ideas of satire. Have you found mm. satire to be something that's uniquely Western?
1: In in some ways. Um, I, I, I tend to find that it, it's mostly appreciated by a Western audience. Although I actually have had quite a few people, particularly in Africa and in India, really appreciate it too. I have not found an appreciation for it in East Asian cultures. <laughs> and I think that that's just something very unique to the kind of the cultural fabric. I don't think satire is, is, there's a history of it. There's a history of, there's there's different kinds of humor, mm-hmm. in different East Asian cultures, but satire really doesn't have a cultural root the way it does. I mean, I think the satire here really has its cultural origins, particularly in England. Mm. Um, and then there's you know there's different kinds of comedy and what i love about the american comedy tradition is that it is so blended from different traditions so you have that that you have a great self-deprecating comedy tradition which is which comes from the irish tradition and then also the eastern european yiddish tradition Mm -hmm. and they're both extremely funny and they're both born of a lot of struggle and a lot of pain for both communities. Right. And they're really woven into like the American comedy fabric really well. Then you have like that really kind of saucy, satirical, highbrow kind of comedy, which is very English in nature, which kind of passed down here. And then what you have, which I love, which is a very uniquely American expression of comedy. I feel like it's an indigenous kind of comedy here. Is that just like in your face, physical slapstick comedy? <laughs> like- America's Funniest Home Videos were like, from the 90s, remember that the father is there and like his little daughter has a wiffle bat and just blasts Way him right into jewels. And it just, <laughs> and it and he just, you know, just hunches over and, and we're just, we're rolling in laughter, <laughs> you know, rolling and we see people, and we also have a lot of people who do a lot of really, really dumb shit here. And that's just, it's just the nature, I think, of how our cultural DNA, we love to jump off of things and crash into things, we just love doing it and we think it's hilarious. I think we're just a very playful people because of that. And I think that manifest, and we think it's funny when those among us do that playful stuff and like calamitous things happen because of it. Like I think of it, a turkeys, every Thanksgiving, the fried turkeys that just light the house on fire. The whole thing. It's <laughs> right. hilarious, right? Someone just lost their house, but we're laughing. Our asses off. It's great. So I look at that as it's a very indigenous American comedy and it's, and I love it and it's great. And that just shows it's so fun to just be playful about everything. Cause slapstick is just being playful
0: yeah i i'm reminded of like the naked
1: gun movies back in the day with like the, naked that gun airplane yeah i was just gonna say that man. that guy's I got a problem yeah yeah i mean there were so, so many great examples of that <laughs> right and we just love that it's just it's hilarious right it's just an airplane is it, i i love that movie so much <laughs> naked gun movies are incredible I and mean, yeah like, like the, the best line ever from naked gun was the uh the first one where uh where the uh, Ricardo Maltaban, he, he goes over the edge, and then he gets, and then he gets um, flattened out by the steamroller, and then a marching band <laughs> yeah. over him, you know. And then uh, his partner Ed starts crying, and he's horrible. <laughs> that's just horrible. My father went the same way. <laughs> oh man, that, that's just not comedy. I don't think you're going to see anywhere else in the world. Right. Right that's a uniquely like American slapstick kind of comedy. And it's just, cause it's so irreverent. <laughs> it's so irreverent. Man. It's great. I think it's the universe is having fun, like through the mechanism of American storytelling. Yeah. Uh, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I love it.
0: Yeah, that's something like you don't hear too often, or at least I don't, is the idea of American
1: storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. we're. Ju- I think we have a, such a unique story here right and it's informed by so much from so many places in the world and yet it's all come together like in this stew this kind of goulash you know or in the caribbean this sancocho and it's it's this amazing expression that it all bubbles up and you have each one each element of it has its own kind of unique flavor but it all melts together in the pot it's a true melting pot so you can taste like the British influence, but you could taste the West African influence, and you can taste the Latino influence, and you could taste it in these different manifestations. But it's uniquely American in its expression, and the whole rest of the world has taken on American storytelling, and and you yeah. see it in every kind of uh, filmmaking. You see it in music. You see how like how big hip hop has become the world over. How you know you see French rappers, and you see you know the K-pop phenomenon in Korea, right. and it's just you know our expressions of storytelling. Have just become a sensation globally, and the, and the stand-up comedy yeah. is, is an American art form in its manifestation, and that has taken on around the world now. You're starting to see a big stand-up scene in India really taking off right now, just really cool to see. And you're seeing in other countries where it's pretty freaking dangerous to be a stand-up comedian, but that's mm. taking off too, which is awesome because stand-ups are the great tellers of truth in every society. You know, they they have been court jesters in, in, in yeah. antiquity, but the the uniquely, uniquely expressive art of stand-up comedy itself really was born in New York in its kind of current manifestation. And it came from the, the immigrant communities in New York, telling their stories to an audience who was like experiencing it with them. And they were just satirizing like day-to-day life. In the past, the gesture would satirize the king. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing, you know, and if you, you could push the king a little bit, but not too far, else you'd be hung. But all right. In the stand standup, you could talk about relationships and you could talk about like the cost of living and you could talk about the garbage piling up on the streets and you could talk about all the other things people deal with in a way it had never been talked about before. Only like in living rooms with family, but now somebody's on stage telling your story back to you mm. in a way you're like, ah, I feel seen. I'm going to laugh at this. This is awesome. Thank you for the release. That's what yeah. I love about stand up I loved it, man. That's what I loved about it. Well, how come you used loved in the past tense? It's not easy being a stand-up comedy a stand-up comedian in 2023. I'll say that. Um, a lot of people they they come with their phones and they will record you mm. and you say something that kind of you know to use a, a politically incorrect term these days. If you go off the reservation and you use any kind of comedy, somebody finds objectionable, you can go viral pretty quickly, and that's going to be the end of you. And then you wonder what's the risk reward of risking everything for one joke that may not even be that good. Now, if I think I have a story to tell, that's important. I don't give a damn who records me, who shares it, who makes me viral, whatever. But if it's just some cheap joke that maybe one person loses their mind over, you have to weigh that in a way that I I don't say you never had to because you did way back in the day. But we had a golden age in comedy, I would say, from about the 70s to the early 2000s, Mm -hmm. about a 30-year run where comedians could really just be comedians and say whatever they wanted and be good. You had that hardcore McCarthyism that happened before that, where if you said anything that was considered to be dicey, maybe seditious, Mm. not in line with the zeitgeist of the day, you could be arrested. Lenny Bruce spent many a night in jail. And George Carlin was the first to kind of call that out in his comedy. And now the pendulum has kind of swung back to that where we have like an, an accepted diktat of what group think is and what it is allowed to be and what you're allowed to think and what you're allowed to say. And as long as you color within those lines, you're okay. But the minute you step outside of that, like the hammer the is going to come down on you. So, you know, I was lucky. I got my start when it was still an open and free comedy scene, but it's not fun anymore. And audiences come in now with a feeling of, can I even laugh at that? Like, is that even okay to laugh at? And they, they censor their own laughter mm. and you really feel that energy in the audience and feels, it's, it's very closed constricted energy. The real magic of standup comedy is a room where everybody's open people. You show up as a comedian to entertain and they come to laugh and that's it. They also come to drink, but they also come mm-hmm. to laugh. And It's just open. And you know the the beauty of open energy. When everybody in the room has open energy, the magic that happens there. But when there's a closed energy from the crowd, the comedian will mirror that closed energy and then the comedy just sucks. And you're just telling a bunch of people what other people deemed acceptable for you to say. And then the fun is gone. And then what's the point? Hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: Do you think it's like a, you know, the world seems to move in cycles. And if we Mm -hmm. just look at the comedy cycle in which they had, you know, you had Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and Robin Williams, and then Mm -hmm. it kind of exploded and then closed off to where Mm -hmm. it kind of narrowed again. And do you think that maybe we're just in a cycle where we're just in a narrowing phase before it explodes Mm -hmm. again?
1: Always. Yeah. I think the universe is, as Alan Watts said, come back to our guy universe is in a constant, is a constant game of hide and seek with itself. Right. Yes. And so any so you can't have expansive cycles in anything forever. Eventually, there will be a, a recalibration. And within right. that recalibration, there'll be a the contraction. And then from the contraction will be born again, a new cycle of expansion, which will be even greater and more radiant and more luminous in the last cycle. And you look at this in the stock market, it plays out that same exact yeah. way. Expansion, then a recession, then a greater expansion, then a recession, greater expansion. Always, always, always. Same thing with art, everything else. It just It's constantly doing that. I think we're on the cusp of a golden age of new comedy, but it will right, be right. born from the censorious era that we live in right now. This, this neo-McCarthyism that we're mm. experiencing right now. I'm glad I'm experiencing it though. Like I, I don't say this to to rag on it or to have like a woe is me thing. I, I'm blessed to where I came up in an era where I, ex- I experienced the expansion. And now like as the universe kind of flowing through me, I'm experiencing the contraction. Mm -hmm. and I now have an appreciation for what it was versus what it is, and more importantly, what it will be again.
0: Yeah. Okay. So do you think with that comes a sense of responsibility? Like if you look at some of the world of comedy today, like you see some of the unknown greats that like, you know, whether it's Dave Attell or Colin Quinn, or there's all these people that you know they're on the fringes, but they they were the ones that helped pioneer the way forward for some of the younger guys that got to explode into it, mm. you know. Yep. And it, you know what I mean by that? Like these guys I laid do. down the foundation and they yep. didn't think they, they hardly got any of the goddamn credit they deserve. You know, I'm yeah. sure that a lot of comedians know who they are and absolutely. they are there, but they didn't get the goddamn headline gig to mm. Charlie Murphy it, you know what I mean, or absolutely or something like that. Yep. So on some level, it kind of excites me to be in a position where I'm not a comedian, but being a podcaster and like, you know, you, maybe maybe it's a being a generation Xer is what it is. Hey, you got to see it. You got to live through the contraction and you probably mm-hmm. never get a giant fucking slice of the pie. But you are just as important as everybody else by bringing up the next generation and creating mm-hmm. the conditions that help someone else explode into it. You feel like you get to yeah. play that role.
1: To some degree, I think the way you can really play that role is to be yourself and to be as yes. authentically yourself as yes. possible. And right. the way I try to do that is understand where my audience is and where my medium is. Mm-hmm. I I don't have a place in stand-up comedy anymore. And not, I'm, a, I'm good with that. I had a place in it. And it was a time and it was a place and it was an audience. But I'm self-aware enough to know that those days have passed to give way to a new era. My audience now is on LinkedIn primarily. And my audience is, is a satire audience. I've channeled my, my kind of comedic wills, if you will, away from stand-up and into satire. I, I enjoy satirizing this crazy world around us. And by doing so, I give others permission to do it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I feel that like that's kind of what I'm doing for the younger generation that wants to come up. And I've had younger comedians reach out to me and like, they appreciate that kind of thing. And I'll keep yeah. doing it. Because yeah. I, I, I won't shy away from the sacred cows. Because on social media, it's different. It's a different kind of audience people you can curate your audience better in stand-up it's all of a it's a gotcha thing you know Mm. it's gotcha comedy it's like they're waiting they're waiting for you to say the wrong thing and then it goes viral and then you have to go on a public apology tour and you know and it's and it really becomes like a salem witch hunt it really does Mm. you have people that will go to comedy clubs for the expressed intention of a gotcha moment with a comedian they're not even there to laugh they don't want to laugh they, they're like they're literally like these um, like these Stasi squads like in East Germany, where they would go to like these meetings, and they would just wait for somebody to say the wrong thing about the government, and then in the middle of the night they'd just be snatched up and disappear, and that'd be it. And we have a new Stasi right now, and it's like a it's like a Twitterati, which is like <laughs> our kind of our, uh, our new Stasi, you know. And 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 to their credit, they see themselves as the heroes. That's the fun part about yeah. different perspectives in the universe, right? Yeah, Everybody everybody's sure. a hero, of their own story, and. And if you ask the Twitterati, I've spoken to many of them about this, you know, they'll say, look, you know, it's not okay to say these things because they lead to real harm and to a lot of hurt feelings. And, you know, you you really you create a lot of discord and, you know, it can lead to violence. And so, therefore, I'm going to snuff you out before you have an opportunity to be heard and before somebody and to come back to the idea of taking things seriously before the joke you tell gets out there and maybe gives the message that this thing is not to be taken as seriously as I mm-hmm. deem it should be. I'm going to cut you off at the knees and make sure you can't get it out there. And this is where they, they, they become self-appointed crusaders. Like, I'm going to fix this thing that's wrong. But in order to fix this thing, and this is, this is the root of it, this is where the root of this Twitterati, all of it, this is the root of the Stasi, this is the root of all of it, it all comes from this idea of control. Not trusting the universe not trusting the goodness of the universe this idea of i'm in a hostile relationship with reality therefore i must control it and in order to control it it must fit my vision of what it ought to be and what we ought to believe and how we ought to act and Mm. if things don't conform to that then i'm going to forcibly make it conform to that but in order to do that i need everyone on board with me and everyone's got to take it seriously if they take it seriously, they're going to behave as intensely towards it as I do. And then maybe we can change it and I can feel safe. But if one person out there doesn't take it seriously and they make jokes about it, it means that maybe somebody else won't take it seriously. And then maybe somebody else won't. And if enough people don't take this thing, that is everything to me, seriously, it won't get changed. And if it doesn't get changed, I won't feel safe. And we can't have that. Mm -mm. Nope and it all oh, it all boils right down to that one little rock all of it
0: man yeah. how much how much of the twitterati and how much of the 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 world that seems to be oppressing people from laughing is real versus just propaganda
1: oh i mean it's real is in the eye of the beholder right i mean so yes absolutely i can only speak from my own perspective because mm-hmm. i'll never I know the motivation of the Twitterati, like at their core and, and I know this because I've, I've spoken to them and this is from their own words. So I'm not putting okay. words in their mouth. Like they have told me basically like, I don't, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. Why like, and I've always asked them and I drill down these questions, like why do you want to fix this? And it always comes down to this one thing. I don't feel safe. Whether wow. they're safe or not objectively doesn't matter if somebody doesn't feel safe. Think about a fear of flying. It's not a rational fear, but people don't feel safe on a big flying aircraft at 30,000 feet that they're not in control of. Mm. So it's a feeling of insecurity. It's a feeling of not being safe. That that way, and anything you're doing to negate that feeling is construed as an act of war, fundamentally.
0: Wow. I cannot... It's, it's almost like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like they're trying to... They, whoever they are, it seems to me the narrative of people that are consumed by feeling unsafe are trying to propagate the narrative of uncertainty as the enemy. Like Absolutely. He- Without a doubt.
1: You know, <laughs> but, I mean, and, and that's why it always, it always leads to totalitarian regimes mm. anywhere in the world. You look whenever enough people feel unsafe and this leads to totalitarian regimes on the right and the left, either way, when people don't feel safe, and when enough people don't feel safe, they feel they need to control reality so they will manifest that in a government that will control every last thing that it possibly can from how much food people get to where they're allowed to live to what they're allowed to say to what they're allowed to think. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what happens is they end up feeling less safe because you can't, you can't control reality. You can't do it. You try and every one of these regimes ends up in absolute misery for everybody who lives under there. Because the more you try to control it, the more miserable it's like in life, the more you try to control your life, the more miserable you're going to get. So imagine doing that writ large and is what we see, mm. which is why you'll always see an outflow of people from the place where there's the most control to the most free flow. That's why you don't see people risking their lives to get from South Korea into North Korea. Nobody risked their lives to get from West Berlin to East Berlin. Nobody ever risked their lives to build a raft, to go through shark infested waters from Miami to, to go to Havana. Never happened. Ever. And if there's one case in any of these countries, please let me know. I'd love to be corrected about this, but I don't think there's ever been one. And it's it comes down to that one thing. It's this, this idea of control. And, and freedom is our natural energetic state of things. And the more you try to constrict that, constrict the flow of energy, it will flow around it. But you'll be miserable if energy gets boxed in. And I think this is what comedy is up against right now it's people who feel unsafe and they're mm. trying to control the entire world around them and covid has only made people more neurotic about that cuz it's just reinforced in their mind well shit yeah the world's not safe look mm. at what just happened of course the world's not safe so we got to control it even more
0: yeah you know it's it's an interesting idea on on covid on so many levels like You know, my daughter being in Hawaii, like you're you're surrounded by so many different cultures. And I was at a PTA meeting. I use PTA as just as as the idea for Mm -hmm. school government or whatever. It was a parent teacher conference or something, something along those lines. And the teachers were up and they were asking, you know, to a, I don't know, there's probably 30 parents in the room. And one of the teachers got up and they had asked, what is it that you would like to see be instilled in your children as they go through the school? And one of the ladies, very proper, intelligent, beautiful Japanese lady stands up and she says, I, I want my child to be obedient. And I'm just mm. aghast, like, fuck, that's the last thing I want. And so, yeah. you know, of course, I have to stand up as the I'm like, hmm, mm. you know, I'm not sure that we're talking maybe we should define what obedience is you know like that i thought that was a good answer like because yeah. maybe we're not talking the same language obviously we're different cultures and she's mm-hmm. like yeah she goes well you know i would like them to you know honor and respect the their elders and i'm like okay i, I i'm with respecting mm-hmm. your elders but i cannot get behind the word of obedient the last thing i want my child to be is an obedient worker yeah. you know, but but it opened up this conversation of like wow there's Two different worlds, and we're even though we're communicating in English, she probably speaks three languages. I speak yeah. maybe Spanish a little bit, and mm-hmm. we get into this idea of definitions and, and, you know, what the hell is honor? What is obedience? And no wonder why we can't even move down a path to success when we're a group of people that definitely prefer in-group preference and and not that we hate oh, yeah. each other. It's just that we, we have different ideas of what things should be in, you know, it's, it's amazing that things even work as well as they do. Like it, it's, I don't know. It's kind Where's of a shocking mind. in the back, but yeah. Right. It's crazy to think about.
1: I think a Japanese culture is, is a really interesting case. Absolutely. It's so fascinated by Japanese culture. I think, I think a lot of the obedience comes from, you know, you know, traditionally the the makeup of society there, but I think really after you look at that society after World War II, in particular. Sure. And this really was a we have to all pull together and be extremely disciplined mm. and be diligent.
0: That's another word. And cross
1: word. every T and dot every I to rebuild our destroyed country and our destroyed civilization from the mm-hmm. absolute rubble. And it's gonna take all of us, and there's no room for error, and there's no room for fucking around. Like we have to all pull in the right direction and we gotta be tightened up when we do it. And then you look at the the country they've created from the ashes. It's the marvel of the world. Mm. And that will get ingrained in you over the course of generations, like discipline, obedience, this is the way forward. Look at other countries that don't have the same discipline and obedience we do. And look at the basket cases that they find themselves in, you know, constant strife and poverty and hunger and this and that and the other. And because they don't have the discipline and obedience, but we do look at what we've been able to accomplish. So I think when you look at that, there's not a lot of room for nuance. If you let go of the reins a little bit, say, well, we could just fall into chaos now. And this is where the fear comes back in. We can't go back to that. Like we were traumatized by that. We're never going back to that. So how do we keep what we have now? How do we keep our, our prosperous, free, disciplined society? By being obedient and disciplined and buttoned up. This brings in okay. So this brings up a whole quagmire
0: of like, I was recently talking to some people about like uh, generational trauma and how some of the things that you go through in your life you may respond to because something had ha- happened to your grandfather, your grandmother. Mm. You yeah. know. On a side note, that the that. that I think underscores this idea is that there was a, I can't quote the exact people that did the science project. People can look it up, but they did this, they did this project with worms where they would take the worms and they would shine a light on them and then electrocute them, shine a light on them and electrocute them. And they got to the point where they conditioned the worms where they all they had, all they had to do was shine the light on them and then they would clench up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like the idea of a Pavlovian dog where you blow a whistle and they salivate. Okay. If that's right, if that's true, and those patterns hold true genetically. Mm-hmm. That is a fucking
1: boom. Oh, yeah.
0: Right? N- oh, now yeah. you could say, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe that from the Japanese culture comes this idea of obedience from World War II. Or maybe it comes even further back that when they saw mm-hmm. the emperor as a manifestation of God. Absolutely. It flows all the way down. And For then you start sure. looking at. You look at the American culture where they're like, "Fuck mm. obedience, man! I'm doing the fuck I want to do. And right. know what you could do about it." Yeah. And all of a sudden, you have a mixing pot of all these cultures coming together. Mm. No wonder there's like a disaster, right?
1: Of course, how could it not be? I mean, this stuff is absolutely generational, and it gets it gets passed down DNA, also in the creed. You know, you have this country that was literally born on the idea of "Go fuck yourself." I'm not doing it. I mean, that I was, was like our literal founding yeah. credo. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. No, I'm not doing it. And that's it. And no other country has ever been formed on that before. But we were. That was our founding principle. Yes. Everything else is window dressing. Mm-hmm. And it was great window dressing. But it was window dressing. Like, that's the core right. principle. Right. And that will attract a certain kind of person from every corner of the world who's like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about that. And it doesn't matter if that person is from Greece yep. or from China or from Nigeria or from Argentina. Right. It doesn't matter. They're going to come with that same credo of... I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna chase my dreams, and my destiny, and I'll be damned if you or anyone else is gonna stop me. And they teach that to their kids, and then their kids, yeah. and then their kids, and that yeah. bleeds into everything, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: and that—that's now we're back at the idea of America, and like, you don't have to be—you know—if you live in South America, you still be American. If you live in China, you could still be American. And like, I think that that is what is needed to create a life worth living. And I think this is a fundamental dichotomy because now we have mm-hmm. this idea of the Twitter, right? Like, listen, God it. You can't have that. All right. Because yeah. there's not fair and this is going to no. happen. And even, I mean, I can see the dichotomy in my life where part mm-hmm. of me is like, dude, you guys can go fuck off. I don't care. I'm mm-hmm. doing, I'm going to do this. And you might not like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. But it's, the, it is that same attitude. That's like, mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to do that. George is going to shit on all these people over here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird sort of dichotomy in ourselves. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this a lot last year, actually. And I almost okay. wrote like a whole book on this. You should
0: do it, man. I would totally read it.
1: <laughs> I know. And it was all about like political movements in a, in the backdrop of a greater spiritual truth and context. Okay. Okay. And how it manifests. So the, the core thesis was basically this, that what messianic collectivist movements on earth try to do is to recreate our divine condition in earthly manifestations. So if you look at our divine condition as there really is no George and there really is no Jeff, we're all the exact same strands and fractals of energy, we're just manifesting differently. But fundamentally, we're all the same. We're all connected. We're all equal. There's there's no above or below. There's these don't exist. And these messianic movements on Earth, they feel that energetically. They know that that's the fundamental truth. Of who we really are and what we really are and because they feel so afraid and disconnected from that here cast off in this 3d reality their way back home at least in their own minds is to recreate that condition of home right here in a human context Uh, so we're gonna have we're gonna have so all think about all the elements that make up home or perfectia in the book whatever you want to call it you know so think about the element of of sameness we're all, we're all the same. So communism comes along and say, well, we're going to impose that here to bring us home so we can experience home here. Because it's not right that you have five billion dollars and that guy sleeping on the street. That's not how we really are. So we have to forcibly create a system where that's how it is. And then you look at, okay, safety. Here's another one, right? I back home, I'm always safe. I can't be harmed, but I feel unsafe here. There's, you know, muggers in the street who can get me. There's a neighbor next door can rob me. There's an invading nation next door that can come in. So I'm going to create a fascist situation here, a fascist dictatorship to keep me safe. And therefore, if we have complete fascism, if we have troops on every single corner, guarding everything all the time, we will be safe. And therefore, we will be home. And the same people now who are involved in, you know, when they say, you know, and particularly anti-racist act, um, activism, Right idea of it's not enough to be not a racist. You must be an active anti-racist. And this comes from the same, that same impetus of there is no racism at home. There are no races at home. There's no concept of bigotry or discrimination. These are anathema to us, but therefore we cannot allow that to exist here. So we must create a situation where you have to be an active anti-racist. We have to stomp it out in every heart for me to feel safe and to feel home again. And Here's where the problem with all these movements comes in. I believe that we have come here to experience the contrast of these divisions and of these things and of these apparent different manifestations interacting with each other to better understand each other through the contrast. Therefore, there can't be a human experience without poverty and wealth. There can't be a human experience without different races. There can't be a human experience without different genders. There can't be a human experience without different political systems and languages and ideologies. This is... Not a bug, this is a feature. Mm. And in order to try to feel, go home because they're, they're feeling incomplete, they're trying to recreate home here by eliminating all the features of the game and trying to eliminate the game itself. Like, And this is why these systems and these processes and these parties and these governments, they always fail. Because the purpose of the game was to experience the contrast within the game and to try to transmute the contrast within the game, to try to make it better, but not eliminate it like it's it's not good to look at racism and say that's okay fine like no how do you become an anti-racist in your own life how do you show people love and grace and harmony and magnanimity and support and shine a light for others to do the same but not how do you forcibly force everybody around to do it because you won't be able to and you'll make yourself crazy trying how do you try to make sure everybody has economic opportunity to not live on the street but you can't force everybody to not live on the street. You can't force everybody to have the same income. And the more you try to force it to get home, the further from home you actually become. And that's the great paradox. The more you chase home, the more home runs away from you and you end up further in this shit. So,
0: I love it. That's such a great yeah. perspective to try and find a unique way to comprehend the real problems that exist in this form. That's a beautiful way to, to, to really dig into it and look at it. And it's such a, in such a way to bring about the idea of interdependence from codependence. You know what I mean yeah. by that? Like,
1: Yeah, they do wow. very much. Yeah. And it's like we're all in this game together. We created this construct. And I think part of what these, these movements get wrong, and I know I'm kind of shitting on them a lot today, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to. It's just more like right. I use them actually as a point of contrast in illustration sure. more than anything, is that there's this idea that like the game itself is wrong. And by saying the game itself is wrong, you stand in opposition, not only to the game, but to yourself. Yeah. Because you're a co-creator. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you say this world sucks, you know, people have these bumper stickers, people suck. Well, you're saying you suck. You are yep. people. Like what are the odds that everybody sucks, but you, what are the <laughs> odds that like every other person out there sucks, except for the person who has the people suck bumper sticker. Pretty slim. I'm going to go on a limb and say, if yeah. everybody sucks, that person probably sucks too. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, so and, that, and that's, it's subconsciously what they're saying. And guess what? If you have a people suck bumper sticker, then if somebody sees that and they're driving around you, you need to merge, that person's not going to let you in. Right. Like, well, screw you too. <laughs> that's it. And that's going to reinforce your belief that people suck. And you'll treat somebody nastily because of that, who will treat you nastily right back. And you'll say, see, everybody around me sucks. Everybody yeah. sucks. I was right.
0: On the, on the topic of merging in cars, I've found a little trick that I use is you always merge in front of someone who just merged in front of the line because they feel guilt, mm-hmm. like they're like, Let me in, let me in. So they let somebody and then you pull right in front of that person and then they'll let you in. But it's back to the mirror. You know what I mean? Like it you're is. just finding yourself. And then when you mm-hmm. merge, you let someone go in front of you. You do. You know I mean? And I always <laughs> do.
1: Yeah. And when somebody's man. like kind enough to let me in, which is really great. I always give them like the hand yeah. wave, yeah, yeah, the appreciation. Totally. And then yeah. Like, all right, that's cool. You know, the next guy's trying to get him. like, I got you. Come on in. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 It's such a. And then that person's going to let somebody else merge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Simple as that. It's it's interesting to see the world play out in your actions because you can actually see kind of karma unfolding in front of you when you allow it to
1: happen like that. Man, it's it's like, it's (laughs) that golden thread. It it really, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And this is where the magic of life comes in. If you allow it, yeah, if you I allow agree. it, like allow yourself to interact positively with one person today. Just yeah. give yourself the grace to do that. Allow yourself one good conversation. Say, it doesn't matter where I go today. I'm going to go to a coffee shop today. All right, great. Be a little extra nice to the barista. Just a little bit. Yeah. You don't have to go over the top. They're going to look at you weird. Yeah. Just be a little extra nice. Yeah. Ask them how their day is going. Ask them how the family's doing. Maybe give them like an extra dollar tip. Yeah, a little bit extra. That's it. If that's the one thing you do today, do that and then do it again tomorrow. And then do it again and then see how your life changes. Yeah, Watch your life change. And I'm not talking subtly. Watch your life dramatically change. If you stack that up every single day and then eventually stack it up in every interaction you have. And even if some people you can't be nice to because some people just don't allow you to be nice to them there are things they do like I just can't I can't with you today mm-hmm. then just walk away see what that does too. not feed it mm. not feed the energy like there's people who send me these these sales DMS and I want to rip their heads off I do man it just drives me nuts and every time I got to catch myself like you know what you're harassing me you don't deserve <laughs> a kind message but I'm not going to give you a nasty one either I'm Just going right. to walk away I'm not going to fuel it because if yeah. I, can try, I can say something super biting and cutting and hilarious to cut you down the right. for what you just wrote, mm-hmm. it's not going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little cathartic for a second, but it's going to bring bad juju into my own field. Yeah. I'm it's not boomerang.
0: Make- it just boomerang. comes right back to you, right?
1: Yeah. And if I want something from somebody, they're going to be snarky with me too. Yeah. So not going to do it.
0: Yeah. A- another good one I use too, that like, um, it, this is super awesome. Everybody listening to this, you should totally do this. Whenever, wherever you go, whether it's a barista or whether you're at a checkout counter or whether, whatever. When you see someone working, just say, hey man, I just want to say thanks for working today. And watch oh. them go Watch them go from like checking stuff out and be like, huh, what did you say? And I'm like, yeah, oh, I, right? I just want to say it's thanks amazing. for working today. Yeah, it's so awesome. And That's it's a pattern so, interrupt. It is. And it snaps yeah. people out of everything and they will stop what they're doing and smile. It happens 99% of the time. Like, and they're like, hey, thanks for coming in today. You know, and yeah. all you just you see them change, man. And it's you like, do. Yeah, yeah, it's so that, awesome, man. That's
1: awesome. It is. Man. It, it works well. It works really well. That's wild. Yeah. Man. George, I can't thank you enough for having me on today, man. This has been awesome. Seriously. Yeah. It's been really cool. Yeah. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate it. I appreciate you, brother.
0: <laughs> well, before I let you go, man, first off, thanks for spending so much time with yeah, me today. Absolutely. This is really awesome. Um, everyone should check out the book right here and you've got, this is just the one I have in my hand, but you have a suite of books that sound pretty sweet to me. And I think people got to learn a little bit about who you are and what your message is. But before I let you go, man, where can people find you and what do you mm-hmm. got coming up?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I'm launching a brand new networking group around the country. It's called the dreamers cafe. And you can check us okay. out the And what we're going to be doing is offering a space for people in midlife who are ready for their second act, who have made a decision that I'm not done yet, to come together and have a place where others will greet them with love, brotherhood, magnanimity, support, and unconditional encouragement. You'll meet other people in the same place in life that you are who are not ready to mail it in just yet either. And you may not be getting that at home. You may not be getting that among your family or your friends or your circle or your coworkers but you will get it here. That's a promise.
0: Man, it sounds amazing. Man, when, So w- when you go there, what can people expect to do?
1: So we're going to gonna have a, a local event in the D.C. area July 27th. So if you're anywhere in Virginia, Maryland, D.C., or East Coast, you want to pop down for that, hit me up on LinkedIn, connect with me. I'll get you the invite. Uh, it's a free event, so there's no, no skin in the game, no requirement of anything like that. That's not what this is about. And we also have a 24-7 Discord community where you'll be able to connect with people who are having their own events in different parts of the country. We're going to come out, exchange information. Just let us know, hey, you're in a place of love and we got you. Simple as that. You still have a dream in you. You've got a breath in you. You've got a dream. You've got a place here to talk to people about that dream. Help them with theirs. They'll help you with yours. Maybe make an introduction, give you an encouraging word, place for you to air out your thoughts, place where dreams are going to still come alive, no matter where you are in life.
0: I love it, man. It sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful. So the dreamers cafe, you got your spot cafe. on LinkedIn. Uh, mm-hmm. is there, and where can people find your books? Is it mostly Amazon or do you have another site where you, Hon- yeah, honestly,
1: else? you could just, just Google Jeff Wallen or Amazon. It'll take my author page. It'll take you to know, all the stuff I put together. So you can check it out there. And, uh, if you want to, want to connect with me, you could just reach me directly on LinkedIn, connect with me, shoot me a DM, love to chat. And, uh, Thanks for tuning in, man. This has been awesome. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: thank you so much today for everything. Check out his books. Check out the Dreamers Cafe. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hang on a second, Jeff. I'll talk to you, but I'm going to hang up with the audience. Yeah, buddy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for everything. That's all we got for today. Aloha. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way. I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now.